Why, hello there. I think you might want to pull up a chair. We're getting gas so hard in this house that I thought I'd better record the show this morning while it's kind of quiet around here. Um, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. I have a lot going on today. If you remember last show I talked about, um, well, if you're confused, go look for my show that talks about, in the title it says I'm being murdered in my own home. Um, I talked about, I noticed some utility trucks outside of my house. Well, yeah, they were there. And now, <laughs> if you look on my website, click on the blog called Smart Meters. Um, I have that one transformer at the end of my property line. What that means is the houses on this side of the street are, have big lots behind us, okay, because it's an older street. And from my back door, looking out to the end of my property line where my fence is, is close to a third of an acre. That's where the one transformer is. Now, um, they made kind of a tactical mistake because, uh, so that alley backs against another group of houses on the other side, okay, but they have smaller yards. My concern is that this is hitting everybody in this whole block now because what's happened is, is that I saw the two utility trucks out in front of my house and um, they weren't directly in front, but um, they were the big trucks, the big ones, like they used to work on the lines and stuff. So of course I noticed them and then I saw the guy walking between the properties. So I thought, what are they, where are they coming from? So evidently they had been behind in the alley installing more um, transformers. Somebody certainly wants to see me dead uh, because there are a total of probably, I, I'm waiting to get some pictures of them. It's kind of a hard thing because, you know, I'm handicapped now, so it's kind of a hard thing to schedule. Like, hey, I think I'm being poisoned. Would you go look at my backyard? <laughs> so, so anyhow, so yeah, uh, there are, as, as far as I know, there are four transformers along the back along my back alley, okay? So the whole block along the back of my house now is full of <laughs> transformers. And uh, yeah, we're getting gas so hard inside the house, it's really, <laughs> it's pretty bad. But anyhow, um, what I've been doing is, of course, just keep moving forward, right? So today I have a very interesting show for you. We're gonna do a walk along because I've developed these four files why four files? Well, four is that death number, right, D? Uh, because what I wanted to do was document the four different areas that I saw as doing the most harm to those of us. And those areas would be Henry Kissinger. Now, I'm not saying these people individually did these things. They were the face of the eugenics, right? We have Henry Kissinger, war criminal. We have Curtis Emerson LeMay, no relation war criminal. We have um, Larry Fink, BlackRock. I have some information on Larry Fink to share with you. Major, major criminal, okay? Speaking out of both sides of his mouth, or her mouth, however you want to look at these things. And then I have put together a major timeline to look at it all from A to Z. Now I must warn you, the timeline is still under construction. I have all the dates lined up. But I'm finding some, well, <laughs> I don't want to bury the lead. There's a lot here to look at, okay? It seems to me the UK was in trouble with money at a certain period around the 
hundreds when all this stuff, but we'll go through that in a few minutes here. But first, and that file is monstrous, and I'm in the process of editing it, but I decided to go ahead and share it because, hey, I'm going to be editing it for a long time because when you see what I've got in there, you'll, <laughs> you'll understand. But anyway, because there's a lot of things that are still hiding, like DDT, <laughs> for example. But anyway, so let me get this small list of things first out of the way. There's a big push right now in the United States because the uh, EPA has announced that our water is contaminated <laughs> with PFAS, is the word you're looking for, PFAS, that'll unlock the world, okay? The Minnesota Pollution Control Ed Agency estimates it would cost 14 to 28 billion <laughs> to remove PFASs from the water and biosolids the treatment facilities over a 20-year period. I guess if we're not all dead by then, right? So over, they're talking about removing these things over a 20-year period. Now, here's where it gets tricky. There's always a trick here, right? Um, this person, Scott, says, those treatment systems are new. They're complicated, and they just take a lot of money to operate. So... The study added new types of PFASs are more difficult and are up to 70% more expensive to remove and destroy compared to older substances. Forever chemicals, that's what they also call them, are found in a range of products and create serious health risks for consumers. They can also contaminate surface water, groundwater, drinking water, fish, and other wildlife. So uh, this person had a genius idea they said I think this is telling a source reduction is the most important thing right now yeah um, there's been pushbacks from some business groups when they propose this because well hey why cut these people in this country out of polluting right okay next um, this whole ESG thing which I'll be talking about today with Larry Fink and BlackRock it is about trying to convince us that things are going to be better, right? That everybody's going to be treated equally, that things are going to improve. Embrace those gay people, embrace those black people. Everybody is going to be embracing everybody. So, who's talking about this? Well, the creeps at Silicon Valley. Mark Anderson, the biggest creep of all, A-N-D-R-E-E-S-E-N. -E 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 he is just, he lives in Atherton, the most affluent place probably in this whole country okay Atherton California look it up and they were trying to put in some relatively lower income not not slums but they were looking to put in some housing you know for us working class and of course he was head and center to oppose this not anywhere near his backyard okay so they're all talking about AI go listen to my show about AI I'm not going to get into it okay because this is just nonsense right AI is also an opportunity to distribute wealth and benefits globally, Anderson said. Like technologies that preceded it, access to the tool will initially be limited to the wealthy elite, but eventually will open up to everyone, he wrote. According to the billionaire, greed... <laughs> you have a hard time saying billionaire and greed in the same sentence. According to the billionaire, greed will motivate... AI companies to continue disseminating their product to maximize the size of their market. AI will eventually be as ubiquitous as electricity as, develop, as developers of it expand their reach. 
in short, everyone gets the thing. And we saw in the past with not just cars, but also electricity, radio, computers, the internet, mobile phones, and search engines, Andrew Seen wrote, the makers of such technologies are highly motivated to drive down their prices until everyone on the planet can afford them. So nice they're looking out for us. In Andrew Seen's opinion, the biggest risk of AI is not investing in it quickly enough. He calls for the U.S. to integrate the technology into society as urgently as possible to maximize its gains for economic productivity and human potential. <laughs> okay. Always trying to sell us something, aren't they? Okay. When I go over this big file in a little bit here, um, you might want to log on to psychopathinyourlife.com and We'll be going through file by file, okay? Never tried this before, but I'm assuming that if you're on even a mobile device, you can also go look up something on the web while you're hearing, right? That I don't know because I've never hooked up my phone to Wi-Fi, so I don't really know. But I'm guessing you can hear me and then also look at my website. But if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But in the meantime, that's the plan is that I'll be going through the website and hopefully you'll be watching along with me. Okay, what I'm looking at is this. There was a big decline in the income in London, okay? The city's fortunes were in decline because of problems of plague and fire. Okay, you'll understand what I'm talking about in a minute here, okay? Because the end of the Roman rule in Britain, they say it's around 410, but I'm not getting too hung up on the dates, okay? But what they're saying, the walls contained the growth of this city and the location of the limited number of gates and the route of the roads through them shaped development within the walls and more fundamentally beyond them. So what they're saying is, like most other city walls around England, the London Wall, and remember the London Wall, <coughs> I covered the London Wall. I did a show, it has photos and castles in the title, and I went through all these old places. and. The London Wall is basically some rocks laying on the ground that they say is the London Wall, right? Well, is it the London Wall? I don't know. They, they put some rocks there <laughs> and some diagrams that they, they came up with, and they said this is what the London Wall was, so I guess we're going to take their word for it, right? So, <clears throat> but the wall is just rocks on the ground at this point, basically, right? So, um, like, like most other city walls around England, the London Wall has been largely lost, though a number of fragments remain. The long presence of these walls has had a profound and continuing effect of the character of the city of London and surrounding areas. And you'll get where I'm going in a minute with this, <coughs> excuse me, because um, city of London is smack in the middle of the city of London. Okay, so. We're talking about the wall in a bit here, okay? Uh, one thing I haven't looked at, which I don't know, will I? I don't know. Um, time prevailing, right? Uh, is I'm just trying to go in order of. <laughs> uh, one thing I have not explored that I might have the time to explore are landmines. Big deal. Explosive remnants of the wars. Yeah, huge deal, these landmines. And in looking at maps briefly, uh, Africa, Russia, lots of places loaded with landmines. Okay. 
And then another thing to pay attention to, this is what happens in all of these events, right? Not every single one of them, but I would say the vast majority, right? Um, there was funding available. I did a show about Bikini Island. Bikini Island was the island the Manhattan Project blew alive with bombs, okay? <laughs> Nuclear. Um, so there was eventually a very small, small settlement for those people, okay? And here's the headline. Trump-era officials under fire as nuclear fund for Bikini Islanders is squandered. Former staff have criticized the Interior Department for ignoring the risk of fraud after the Trump administration ceased scrutiny of a $59 million fund for nuclear survivors, which is now depleted. Former staff have lashed the U.S. Department of Interior for failing to predict that a 2017 decision to lift oversight from a 59 million trust for Pacific Islanders displaced by American nuclear testing would lead to the fund's exhaustion through mismanagement and alleged fraud. Well, imagine that. Imagine that. And keep in mind, Trump and the people in charge of this country, we don't even know what their real names are, okay? Trump is some royal king person, okay? So, <coughs> and these people are such liars that, you know, they didn't all this deception has been done through the, their lawyers and the law, right? And I'll be getting into all of that today. I'll show you. I have all the files for you to look for yourself on exactly how your birth certificate is written. All those things are going to be over there today. So anyway, so it's just a constant cycle of harm, destruction, raise funds, steal the money type scenario. And it, it really... Their own lawyers didn't even pass laws for these freaks to get married until just a few years ago because transgenders were not even allowed to legally marry. So put your head around that one. All of our U.S. presidents have been transgender, and they've all been married, so... <laughs> and they've all been married to men in wigs. I mean, if you, if you think I'm joking, go look at Eleanor Roosevelt, okay? And also, while I'm on the subject, um, I did that video... For YouTube that now anyway it's over on my website and I mentioned it last show but I made a mistake and the link wasn't working so if you click on the title called elite transgenders it's like a 10 or 15 minute video you'll be able to click on the link which I believe was working as of last night so, okay so th this is what happens and because even, not everybody in charge is a royal character okay but a lot of them are when you look at the big money games there, it's going to be somebody who's wearing a mask and some sort of royal characters. And I have a whole lot about this mask business. They've been at this mask business for a very long time. And I have all of that documented, too. So anyway, so, yeah, so, for example, Mother Teresa is some royal person who raked in that money all that time and let those people suffer. You know, Pope Francis really isn't Pope Francis. is some royal freak. So wherever you see a lot of money transpiring, you will find these people's greedy hands, okay? So this is what happened with this particular case. And I want to tell you that what happens is people see these people get settlements. And they think, oh, good for them. Those people at Bikini, they got some money for all that terror they went through, right? Well, it never works out that way. Because, for example, while I'm on the subject of money and terror, our favorite psychopaths, Sackler family, who came up with Valium and Oxycontin for opioids, right? I have all that documented in this file, too. 
Well, those people are just now settling their civil case. Now remember, this case has been going on for years, okay? And um, the civil case is gonna do a couple of things. It's going to absolve them of any future criminal proceedings. <laughs> um, just because they murdered millions of people. And so the civil, it's gonna absolve them of future criminal, likely. And it will also allow them, get this, I think it's like 18 years, whatever amount they've agreed to, they get to pay it off over this huge amount of time. Well, they do these huge amount of time things because A, they can steal the money in the meantime, <laughs> they could reroute it. Um, they, make money on the, they make money on that money during interest during that time. So it's a big shuffleboard game. And the whole while, they don't have to admit responsibility. So here's how this case played out. There was this Tom person, and he was uh, a senior official in 2017 in the department's Office of Insular Affairs, said that he would have bet money that there would have been issues with the trust fund and that the money would have been wasted. Meanwhile, confidential bank documents reviewed by the Guardian reveal, remember the Guardian is also a CIA operation. See how they, it all interplays. Like this, this, this month they seem to all be into freeing Julian Assange, right? I saw even that liar Jeremy Corbyn was out. They were all out at some gala talking about we gotta free Julian Assange. And they're just trying to lure us up to the front, right? All this whistleblower stuff. After the Julian, I mean, after the Edward Snowden thing, some rich people in the Silicon Valley that found at eBay, can't remember his name, Pierre something, I think, he funded a publication called The Intercept, okay, for whistleblowers. The Intercept. What does The Intercept mean? Well, I don't know. Maybe they might intercept you because they want to drag net us into the surface, right, to be able to identify who we are, so that's why I think they're making this big push. Also, it's to control our time because the whole Julian Assange thing is a manufactured CIA deal. So, yeah, they're trying to uh, spend a lot of time on the Julian Assange thing, and uh, I think it's to lure more people into their web and to say, oh yeah, I know this, I know that, because this whole thing, I watched part of their little meeting, it was just disgusting. They're talking about how they spent time in prison for their journalism. <laughs> Julian Assange is locked up, and none of it's true. And, you know, so anyway, so. Okay, so where was I? I went off on a tear over the Guardian. Okay, yeah, so all those people, the entire people who say they're on the left and they want freedom, they're, they're all connected, right? They may not be directly getting a payroll check from the CIA or their friends out at DARPA, but they are, in fact, connected, okay? So the Guardian revealed red flags that could have alerted. I mean, the first red flag to me was taking off any measures of checks and measures, right? <clears throat> so reveal red flags that could have alerted the department to potential issues that have been scrutinized, have been scrutinizing the fund, including the transfer of millions of dollars to two personal checking accounts over which the fund's trustees had no oversight. That's a little bit of a red flag. Together, the criticism and confidential documents are likely to increase the pressure the Interior Department faces for its role in the fund's exhaustion, which left thousands of nuclear survivors, survivors and their descendants for fed. The U.S. government established the fund in the 1980s, 
there's a method to my madness here, okay? What I'm trying to show you here is that every deal the U.S. government makes, pretty much every deal, gets broken, okay? And sadly, these people who already have been tortured enough are going to be at the hands of more torture, okay? So, the U.S. government is, and also they did the same thing to those people from, in every case, the Asajj Nation, those, that Indian tribe that got so rich. Well, they got in, they stepped into that deal. So, the U.S. government established the fund in 1980 to support displaced residents of Bikini Atoll, a small reef in the Pacific nation of the Marshall Islands, which the U.S. left uninhabited after it tested 23 nuclear weapons there between 1946 and 1958. Until recently, the fund provided several million dollars each year to a council that oversaw the displaced Bikinians, helping to provide housing, food, and education in a country where the median income is $9,600 and almost half of households skip meals due to lack of money. In 2016, however, there was this person called Anderson Jibas, J-I-B-A-S, was elected mayor of the Bikinian Council and began pushing the Interior Department to hand over control of the fund. In 2017, Dominic, who was Donald Trump, had appointed as Secretary, Assistant Interior Secretary, announced, okay, his name, this person that did this crime, 2017, Douglas Dominic, D-O-M-E-N-E-C-H. I take the time to spell these out because these people are criminals, okay? We should understand what their names are. So Dominic, who Donald Trump had appointment, appointed as Assistant Interior Secretary, announced that the department would hand over control of the flood, which by then held $59 million to restore trust and ensure the sovereign nation, sovereignty means something. So, yeah, one way to show trust is to hand a bunch of criminals all the money that the victims sorely need. Earlier this month, the New York Times reported that the fund had been whittled down to about $100,000, largely through extravagant spending by Jebus on projects including land development in Hawaii, new ships and planes, and an apartment complex in Marshall Island. Annual bank statements reviewed by The Guardian show that some of the money was dispersed directly from the trust fund to the vendors with whom Jeebus and other local officials were negotiating. Because these disbursements were direct, they allowed the fund's trustees to exercise a measure of oversight. But the statements also show that Jeebus and the council's American lawyer, Gordon Benjamin, instructed trustees to distribute large amounts of money to a Bank of Guam checking account that they said was being used for council operations, but which the trustees could not scrutinize. See, here's how it works. You get a, an attorney as part of your little club, right? And all you have to say to that attorney is, hey, you know what, we're kind of thinking about doing this. He goes, well, hey, here's how we do it. They move in with a solution, right? Um, but these statements also show that Jeebus and the council's American lawyer... Oh, they distribute. Okay, okay, I did that part. Uh, 
In 2019, for example, Jeebus and Benjamin instructed trustees to, dis to disperse $15.36 million to the Bank of Guam account. When asked about the Bank of Guam account, Jeebus said in a written statement that he had no idea what you are talking about. The Guardian also reviewed correspondence between Benjamin and the trustees and found cases of controversial spending. In March 2019, for example, Benjamin wrote that since early February, a team of Bikinian Council, an engineer, two contractors, and I have been on an active search for an airplane for KBE tourism. Payments to at least one of the contractors, plus travel expenses and per diem, etc., has begun to mount as travel has taken the team to Europe and Asia in search of an airplane. Flying on an airplane, looking for an airplane, I guess, huh? Benjamin said the team was traveling to Papua New Guinea and needs $250,000 immediately to be dispersed to the bank fund in Bank of Guam account to cover travel expenses and a partial deposit on a potential claim. Also in 2019, Benjamin instructed the trustees to send $50,000 directly to Jeebus' Bank of Hawaii personal savings account. Boy, they're really something else. They're not even bothering to go the um, um, hidden money route, are they? These are, these are kind of easy-to-catch criminals. Unlike the ones in charge, right, who have all these offshore accounts and stuff. Okay. Benjamin explained that the money was part of a council-approved representation package to pay for meetings with contractors, consultants, U.S. government, and Marshall Islands government and local government representatives. Benjamin did not respond to questions about the spending. Some of Jeebus's and Benjamin's early instructions to the trustees included the signatures of the majority of the Bikini Council. Later, the process was changed so that disbursements could be made without evidence that they had been approved by the wider council. Jesus, Jeebus said this change was made by the trustees. So somebody told them to leave the other group of people out of the decision-making, I guess. The release of large sums to checking accounts that trustees could not scrutinize might have attracted concern from American officials. But by then, the Interior Department was no longer receiving information about the fund from the Bikinian Council or bank officials. Well, of course, it's called plausible deniability, right? The Department declined to comment on the bank document. From 2018, Jeebus refused to provide the Council's financial documents to the Marshallese Auditor General, forcing Marshallese police to forcibly seize the, doc seize the documents in 2021. In an interview with the New York Times, Jeebus admitted he occasionally used money from the fund to pay for personal items. Jeebus told The Guardian that he had also directed between $200,000 and $250,000 from the funds toward the construction of a two-story house for his personal use. He claimed this project had been approved by the Bikinian Council. Stamen, the former director of the Office of Insular Affairs, that's here in this country, said the Interior Department 
had withdrawn oversight despite the risk of fraud because it did not want to anger local officials. The position of many officials behind the scenes has historically been that Interior shouldn't have oversight <clears throat> because if we have oversight, then we're going to have disagreements with the islands and we can't handle disagreements, Damon says. The department declined to comment on the criticisms. Last week, following protests by Bikinians, angered, the, angered by the New York Times revelations, the Marshallese government temporarily placed the Bikinian Council finances in the care of the National Minister of Finance. Well, now it's gone from, what was it earlier, 56 million? It now has like, what, 100,000 left? As of whatever this date was, right? But as of today, it's probably got $50 left, right? Okay. So, in contrast, accountability in America seems less likely. An official familiar with the situation said the department was hoping to contain the story and circling the wagons against potential scrutiny by Congress. American spending in the Marshall Islands is largely overseen by the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. Spokespeople for Senator Lisa Murkowski, Catherine Cortez Mastro, and Maria Cantwell, all members of the committee and who should be getting lots of phone calls, who expressed concern in 2018 about replenishing oversight of the fund, did not represent respond to requests. See, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? They just didn't respond, huh? Okay, let's see. I don't know why, but I have more in here as far as those forever chemicals. I have more on the other page. I'm not going to get into it. But the chemical industry took a page out of the tobacco playbook when they discovered and suppressed their knowledge of health harms caused by exposure to PFAS, researchers claimed in a statement. Funny how these researchers, right, they've been doing this stuff since, uh, I'll have more evidence in the timeline in just a few minutes here, but it strikes me as amusing in a sinister way that since the introduction of these PFASs that, well, they're just now realizing they're dangerous. Gee, doesn't that kind of concern you just a little tiny bit, all these esteemed scientists? So, before I get to the show, I have this other list I couldn't resist sharing with you. 16 cities with the most members of the world's wealthiest population call home. Number of billionaires by cities, okay? I'm just going to blaze through the list. I'm not, they say one or two of them get lost for city, too much detail, okay? But it gives you a list of where these people hang out. Paris, oh, I've lost their numbers. <laughs> I went through and edited. Okay, I'll start with them. Chicago, which is a tie with Paris, so that means there are 32 billionaires in Chicago and Paris, okay? As of 2022, I believe. Yes, as of 2022. If I were them, I wouldn't be bragging where I live, but hey, you know, psychopaths have no sense of what reality is here because they have no clue what a nation of hungry, angry people might start to look like in the future, but I will continue on here. San Paolo, they have 33. This one 
kind of surprised me. Istanbul, they're game players, right? 33. Hangzhou, China, they have 34 billionaires. Dubai, 38. Mumbai, India, all that oppression, and they still have 39 billionaires. Must be 39 people who sold out their country, right? Shenzhen, China, they have 42. Kind of funny since everybody hates China, right? You think they wouldn't be spreading money to China. Now, would you, unless you understand that they're all in it together? Singapore, 54. Los Angeles, 58. Beijing, 61. London, 75. Those red Russians with that red Saturn flag. Moscow, 76. San Francisco, 84. Hong Kong, 112. Boy, those Chinese that everybody seems to hate really have a lot of billionaires now, don't they? And we don't even know where their money's parked. New York City, the biggest one of all, 136 billionaires as of 2022. Because here is what it is all about. This is nothing more than what I would consider a um, criminal activity. And they're going to say it for themselves right here. Let's listen to Donald Trump. I want to thank the president for the job they've done. Again, uh, this has been thousands of years in the process between borders. He's talking about, I'm sorry, he's talking about the president of Turkey sitting next to him. A bunch of women in the room. Between these countries and other countries that we're involved with 7,000 miles away. So we want to worry about our thing. Uh, we're keeping the oil. We have the oil. The oil is secure. Uh, we left troops behind only for the oil. And uh, I have to just finish by saying that the president and I have been, we've been very good friends. For a long time, almost from day one, and uh, we understand each other's country. We understand where we're coming from. I understand uh, the problems that they've had. What he's talking about is there. The U.S. remained in Syria for the oil. Okay, he's been talking to Turkey, and because him and the president of Turkey, Erdogan, are such close friends. They've been talking about the oil, and he assured Erdogan that the U.S. is keeping the oil. <laughs> They're criminals in expensive suits, okay? And including many people from Turkey being killed in the area that we're talking about. And he has to do something about that also. It's not a one-way street. So I just want to say it's a great honor to have you both, and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, they come right out and say it. We're here for the oil. We're going to keep the oil. <laughs> I don't think they could make it much more clear. But let me get back here. Because um, this other stuff is far more interesting. And, um, yeah, okay. Let me close out that file. Okay, here we go. We are going over to my website, psychopathinyourlife.com. First file, I'm going to click open is going to be Henry Kissinger. I'm going to scroll through this one. Um, I'm not going to be reading you articles or things like that. I assume that I'm not your seeing eye dog. <laughs> 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 
I've tried to present, especially in the big file that we'll be getting to next, the timeline, is different views. Like if there was a good article that was written about how the victim suffered from this act, I will publish that. Now, keep in mind, I need to go through all of these things and do a heavy editing job, but that's basically because I'm trying to focus on the biggest crimes and look for the patterns. And when you start to look for the patterns, it has been an eye-opening deal for me. So anyway, so let's stick with Kissinger, okay? The Kissinger file is basically, what I found interesting about Kissinger was this. I have all the pictures of Kissinger because I love photos. And this all got started because I was looking through photos and I thought, well, I should put these into files. So I created these blogs. So yeah, so Kissinger has his own file because I consider him a major murderer of us people, okay? So I dug up a lot of interesting pictures about Kissinger and his involvement with all of this, okay? But remember, Kissinger is just the face of all this, right? And so I have all the Kissinger quotes and all that. And what I found interesting, too, because John McCain, when he was alive, or supposedly, he, um, people protested. And I'd like to point this out, okay? There's an article here about people protesting. Anti-war demonstrators interrupt a Senate committee to demand the arrest of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. So Senator John McCain called a group of anti-war protesters low-life scum as he had them ejected from a Senate hearing after one waved a pair of handcuffs in the face of former President, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. So you know, Kissinger's in this meeting, they stand up. This group is called Code Pink. Well, Code Pink is their group, okay? Code Pink, trannies, transgender, a man in a wig runs it, yeah. This is how it works, okay? The anti-war protesters are their people. Where are our people? Well, they're hiding in their homes, right? Looking at Facebook. Okay, so anyway, so then I also found some interesting pictures as far as um, Kissinger was married once before to a woman named Anne Fleischer. So, of course, I have some good pictures of Anne. And I try to um, steer somewhat clear of the children, but his children are certainly adults now, so I'm not going to stay totally clear. Um, I did dig up some pictures of his children, and also his children now, I think his son is like, um, well, I think he's like the production manager for Conan O'Brien, yeah, so, um, let me see, his son David Kissinger has been president of Conan Conaco since 2005, before that he served as co-president of NBC Universal Television Production. <laughs> This is Kissinger's son. Over his career in television development and production, Kissinger has helped bring to the small screen such shows as House, The Office, and Boy Meets World. So yeah, um, his kids I consider open game because they're adults, they're part. And I found a good picture of Kissinger sitting next to um, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, the Theranos woman who supposedly is in prison now. The question I have is, where did she get those babies from? That is a man in a wig. Okay, so that's Kissinger. So that's a good picture of Elizabeth, Katie Couric, and Kissinger all sitting there smiling. 
So yeah, you might want to cruise through Kissinger. Got some good pictures, you know, because John Kerry, that whole thing about him protesting in Vietnam was obviously fake. <laughs> they put their people in a key position, so the rest of us think, oh yeah, it's all been taken care of. Let's sit back and do something else. Yeah, well, this is the result of sitting back and doing something else, is that their people are fully in charge. <laughs> Okay, I can't do anything about it. I can just record it, right? Okay, so what was this page here? This page here is, um, oh, Kissinger, I meant to close that one. I thought if I organize this by closing the pages, I'd be a further ahead of the game. Okay. Okay, let's move on to Larry Fink. Black Rock. Black Rock. They like to do the black and white. Oh, Larry Fink certainly is a good example of black and white. Larry Fink says the ESG narrative has become ugly and personal. Do say, Larry, ugly and personal. Because Larry, Larry has been quoted, and it will be here in this file for you to look out for yourself. Um, the way that they word these things is very interesting, and the whole deal with this ESG is to get us under control. And his wording a few years ago was uh, less measured, right, as far as how candid he was, right? And, but it's still, it is still about control, right? But what I, what, I, what I show you in this Larry Fink BlackRock file is the fact that Larry Fink is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. So... Um, says, oh shoot, let me see here, Larry says, um, ESG narrative has become ugly and personal, I'm taking this very seriously, Fink said in an interview with Bloomberg TV at the World Economic Forum in Davos, we are trying to address the misconceptions, it's hard because it's not business anymore, they're doing it in a personal way. And for the first time in my professional career, attacks are now personal. They're trying to demonize the issues. And that was a direct quote from Larry Fink. We are trying to address the misconceptions. It's hard because it's not business anymore. They're doing it in a personal way. And for the first time in my professional career, attacks are now personal. They're trying to demonize the issues. And so I just show you graphically in this section that Larry Fink, before the BlackRock group helped out us working class, they had children. And I found some good pictures. There's a group of young girls on a break from their jobs as oyster shuckers at a seafood canning company in Port Royal, South Carolina in 1911. They're pictured from left to right. Josie, six years old. Bertha, six years old. And Sophie, who was ten years old. And why do I always say evil has to come packaged as help? So what's going on now? The U.S. Labor Department released, there was only two photos released. That's why you'll see the two photos replicated here because two photos of underage children working illegally for Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated, PSSI, in a Nebraska slaughterhouse. And you know, I'm in Nebraska, so this is where this whole thing got started. 
USA Now. Shocking photos show kids as young as 13 hired by Blackstone firm to clean slaughterhouse. So what has changed? Well, not much. So the children were hired to work graveyard shifts cleaning slaughterhouses, okay? And it was a Wisconsin industrial cleaning company which is accused of illegally using child workers, including one who was 13, to clean meat processing plants in Minnesota and Nebraska. According to a civil complaint filed by the U.S. Labor Department in the U.S. District Court of Nebraska, Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., keep that, keep that in your head, okay, P-S-S-I, okay, employed more than 30 children aged 13 to 17 as cleaners in JBS. JBS is a huge Brazilian meat slaughtering people, okay? JBS. Look for them under. I found a really good show about them called The Butchers from Brazil. They've cleaned out, they're cleaning out the rainforest. Anyway, we'll get into more of that in the timeline with JBS. But anyway, so JBS is a key name to know, okay? They're the ones who kind of came out of nowhere and they control the beef industry. Okay, so this is between JBS and Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., P-S-S-I. So, JBS USA Meat Packing Plants in Grand Island, Nebraska, in Worthington, Minnesota, and at Turkey Valley Farms in Marshall, Minnesota. Federal labor law prohibits the use of workers under 18 on killing floors or on mechanical processing equipment because the work is a federally designated hat, well, of course, working with dangerous equipment. The company is accused of violating federal labor laws by employing at least one worker under 14 to clean a slaughterhouse and meat packing plant, Empl employing children under 15 to work overnight shifts during the school year, and employing workers under 18 to work on the killing floor and clean power and clean power driven machines. So yeah, I, I'll leave the rest of the story for you to go and explore on your own. Uh, because here's my point here, okay, remember P-S-S-I, Packers Sanitation and J-B-S, right? So who are these people? Well, first of all, if you look at these pictures, they're getting, they may, they may get a uh, Blackstone meatpacking firm known for amputations and deaths has been fined $1.5 million for child labor violations. So this meatpacking place, they're switching the words around, okay, because JBS, Blackstone, and this PSSI all lead back to the same road, right? Remember, this is Larry Fink talking about no one should be eating meat, no one should be doing this. He owns, and I have the proof here of this, okay, because when I talked about this in the past, I said I thought that he owned it, okay, so <laughs> I no longer think. Okay, so, the so anyway, so the they get these very small fines, okay? These children should never have been employed in meatpacking plants, and this can only happen when employees do not take responsibility to prevent child labor violations. These kids, there's a big difference between a 10-year-old kid and even an 18-year-old kid, okay? I live across from a school, okay? 10-year-old kids are still pretty tiny, okay? Look at the pictures for yourself. How nobody thought this is a kid is amazing, right? But that's 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 the plan, not the bug in the system. But here's the catch: as it turns out, P 
Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., or PSSI, was acquired by Blackstone Group in May of 2018. So PSSI wasn't just an acquisition for Blackstone, because they, they own about 10% of every country, company in the world, right? It was also a partnership, okay? This was a partnership. So anyway, so yeah, um, pretty sick. I'm not going to go through this thing because I think it, I'm not your CNI dog, and I want you to go read it for yourself. Um, the only way we're going to learn is by not turning our heads in another direction, um, because this is just revolting. And here, this is the part I want to focus in on, too. There's something about this money in BlackRock, okay? Um, and because here's the thing, which is kind of interesting. There's a group called Vanguard, okay? Who are the biggest money people? Well, three. Vanguard, BlackRock, and let me see here. And a place called State Street, okay? These private equity people are the ones who are just buying up all the low-end stuff. They're buying up the companies that um, give payday loans to poor working-class people. I mean, they're, they're going after everything, okay? They've been the ones who have notoriously been buying up the nursing homes in this country to turn them into cash operations. They own all of our medical stuff. Anyway, so the names you're looking for is this, <clears throat> and basically what I'm leaving here is a trail for somebody else to pick up because I will likely not get back to it. Okay, so we have Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock. And why do I want you to look closer at these places? Well, because it controls all the money, which controls all the harm, which is the subject for today, right? Today is about how many people have gotten harmed, but first let's talk about the money they're using as the weapons, right? So BlackRock and Vanguard, the same shady people own Big Pharma and the media. So the stock of the world's largest corporations are owned by the same institutional investors. They all own each other. That means that competing brands like Coke and Pepsi aren't really competitors at all since their stock is owned by exactly the same investment companies, investment funds, insurance companies, banks, and in some cases governments. It's just a dual thing, right? Give us two choices. Also, give us two things to argue about, right? So here's what I found interesting and why I think Vanguard needs some very serious looking. Because Vanguard and these people are probably the funnel of how this money gets sent to the city of London, right? And I have all that documentation I'll be going through in a minute here. Okay, what does Vanguard mean? Vanguard. Form now, remember, they're the ones who love all this coding thing, okay? Vanguard, foremost part of an army, lead, an army, leading position in any field, foremost, cutting edge, so, um, yeah, Vanguard, um, the president is a Vanguard of the U.S. military, who are Vanguards, the word Vanguard means the foremost position in an army or fleet advancing into battle and or leading position in a trend or movement. Both are fitting descriptions of this global behemoth owned by globalists pushing for a global reset, the core of which is the transfer of wealth and ownership from the hands of the many into the hands of the very few. Interestingly, Vanguard is the largest shareholder of BlackRock as of March 2021. 
Vanguard itself, on the other hand, has a unique corporate structure that makes its ownership more difficult to discern. It's owned by various funds, which in turn are owned by the shareholders. Aside from these shareholders, it has no outside investors and is not publicly traded. So the elites who own Vanguard apparently do not like being in the spotlight, but of course they cannot hide from who is willing to dig. Reports from Oxfam and Bloomberg say that 1% of the world together owns more money than the other 99%. Even worse, Oxfam says that 82% of all earned money in 2017 went to this 1%. In other words, these two investment companies, Vanguard and BlackRock, hold a monopoly in all industries in the world, and they, in turn, are owned by the richest families in the world, some of whom are royalty and who have been very rich since before the Industrial Revolution. Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, the puppet master's portfolios. In all, BlackRock and Vanguard have ownership in some 1,600 American firms, which in 2015 had combined revenues of $9.1 When you add in the third largest global, global owner, State Street, their combined ownership encompasses nearly 90% of all S&P 500 firms. So Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. State Street Corporation is an American financial services and bank holding company headquartered at 1 Lincoln Street in Boston with operations worldwide. It is the second oldest continually operating U.S. bank. Its predecessor, Union Bank, was founded in 1792. So, um, it is the largest custodial bank in the world providing security services and is considered a systematically important bank by the Financial Stability Board. So along with BlackRock and State Street, those are the three on the index fund managers, okay, that dominate corporate America. So um, there's lots of information for you to take a look at. I'm only just picking out a few things because, remember, BlackRock was called in by the U.S. government in 2008 over that little crisis, right? Larry Fink was the one who was put in position to handle all of that, okay? <laughs> okay. Behind the scenes of many of the companies that provide the products and services you use each day are two investment firms that own more shares than other shareholders. The list includes social media, transportation, news media, food manufacturers, and pharmaceutical companies. BlackRock and Vanguard hold large interests in pivotal companies, and Vanguard holds a large share of BlackRock. In turn, BlackRock has been called the fourth branch of government by Bloomberg, as they are the only private firm that has financial agreements to lend money to the central bank system. 
BlackRock also developed the software used by the Fed to manage financial transactions. One Princeton University lecturer has said BlackRock controls the Federal Reserve and has more power than most governments. Ascertaining who owns large portions of Vanguard is more difficult as it is a private company that is not publicly traded. <laughs> funny how that works, isn't it? It's funny how that works. Lawyers probably spent years, $1,000 an hour in their expensive Italian suits, but they're still psychopaths, right? They can go home to their big palaces, but in the morning they're still psychopaths. Okay. BlackRock says it will look to institutional dialogue to promote change in environment and social policy. Okay. So, BlackRock. Remember, Larry Fink is all about preserving things, right? Don't eat meat. Don't do this. The World Economic Forum is all about stop destroying the earth. Okay. What's Larry Fink doing on the other side of his mouth? BlackRock is the world's largest investor in deforestation. <laughs> I couldn't make this up if I spent the next hundred years. Okay. Um, and I'm just, there, there is a ton of information here, right? So just go look for yourself. So, um, because, you know, I, I, I found some things that, problems with JBS and the carcasses and the plants and all that. So, uh, JBS, the world's largest food company, you probably never heard of. And then Larry Fink. Okay, now here we get interesting. So I hope you will go and take a look at all that because uh, they all tie together, right? And JBS is the one being accused of deforesting the, the um, rainforest. So BlackRock is part of deforesting. But on the other hand, see, they cover both sides, right? But they always hedge their bets on both sides. And if this is a this is a pretty visible example, right? So I hope the next time you hear Larry Fink from BlackRock talk, in the back of your mind, you'll be thinking, well, hey, this guy's talking about doing all these good things. But remember, Larry Fink was the one who put children in slaughterhouses, and he and I see anymore, okay? So in a tight labor market, some states to look to another worker, children. Okay, I'm going to... Um, all the data is here for you to take a look at. Children working in graveyard shifts. Okay, exposing BlackRock. Yeah, I've got a lot of information for you to look at here and a lot of pictures. The reason I look at so many pictures is because Larry Fink is probably, oh, his family, he's probably second or third generation in on the transgender and the hormone thing, right? So I like to look at a lot of different angles as far as the different angles of their heads, their eyes, because they all get these weirdly shaped eyes after a bit. Um, so I like to look at their profiles and just all the different features. I like to look at what a woman looks like when she's taken hormones. <laughs> so anyway, so that's why you'll find so many different angles and stuff of these people um, because I'm studying them, so it's just interesting to me. So I have also, let me see, I had some, um, I had some, I'll have to look through my files. I'm glad I looked because uh, I have this whole file on Larry Fink's family. <laughs> when you, when I, what I've been doing is, I had this, these files get uploaded, and then I've been adding to them. And if I don't save every time I add something, Mike got lost. But anyway, you'll want to check the Larry Fink file later because um, somebody did some 
interesting digging into his whole family, um, mom and dad and kids and all that kind of stuff, which is very interesting. So I thought I would document it. So check back on that because I just noticed that I must have uh, deleted it at some point. But anyway, so onward we go. Okay, so next one. This one is um, Curtis Emerson LeMay, war criminal, U.S. Air Air Force general who became famous for leading a bombing campaign in the Pacific during World War II. After the war, he served as a leader of the Strategic Air Command, or SAC, the U.S. military division responsible for most of the company's nuclear weapons. I was also born on a SAC Air Force base in Merced, California, but my father was in Korea. In 1945, LeMay was a national hero, celebrated in victory parades and on the cover of Time magazine. Twenty years later, everything had changed. Hollywood and the press vilified him. He was parodied as the mad general in Dr. Strangelove, longing for a nuclear exchange with the Soviets. In a searing essay, journalist I.F. Stone labeled him the caveman in a bomber, jet bomber. Oh, shoot, wait a second here. Um, okay. At best, he was considered a brutish thug. Brutish thug. At worst, he was portrayed as demented. Oddly, the May never refuted his detractors and never seemed to encourage his negative reputation. During World War II, LeMay helped turn the bombing effort over Europe from an ineffective and costly failure into a success. He was the architect behind the firebombing of Tokyo and 64 other Japanese cities. In his firebombing campaign over Japan, LeMay ordered the deaths of more civilians than any other military officer in American history, well over 300,000 and perhaps as many as half a million. And that's just civilian deaths, okay? The career of Curtis LeMay, I'll tell you what war is about, he once told Sam Cohen, the inventor of the new neutron bomb. You've got to kill people, and when you kill enough of them, they stop fighting. That's what he said. He said, I'll tell you what the war is about. And this was his direct quote. You've got to kill people, and when you kill enough of them, they stop fighting. The satanic nature of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Head over to Yandex, Y-A-N-D-E-X.com. You will find a lot of interesting reports people have done about these wars. And because I'm just putting information into these files, I'm not able to put a source for everything. Some of these things you might, because it's still being edited, you might read along and think, well, wait a minute, where'd that paragraph come from? Well, because I might have copied and pasted it there and thought, well, I'll get back to editing it later. So there's, there's a lot of what I would call orphan copy in this stuff, okay? So if you find something that sounds out of place, it probably is out of place. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So, um, yeah, so here's the thing is that um, none of this stuff, a lot of it, people have dug through files and stuff, okay? So they know that this stuff is, in fact, true. And they know a lot of these things were, were lies, okay? But the acceptance for the general population really isn't there. But anyways, um, 
So I found this interesting article that said the satanic nature of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. President Truman made certain that the Japanese willingness to surrender in May 1945 was made unacceptable because he and his Secretary of State, James Burns, wanted to use the atomic bombs as quickly as possible to show results, in Byron's words, to send a message to the Soviet Union. So the good war was ended in the Pacific, and the good guys killing hundreds of thousands of Japan's Japanese civilians to make a point to the bad guys has been demonized ever since. So it's the good guy, bad guy thing, right? So they claim that the U.S. was the good guys and going against the bad guys. Well, many baby boomers, I'm continuing on here, like to say they grew up with the bomb. They are lucky they grew up. They got scared. They got to hide under their desk and wax nostalgic about it. <clears throat> Do you remember dog tags? Those 1950s and 1960s scary movies? The children of Hiroshima and Nagasaki who died under our bombs They couldn't hide. They just went under. To be more accurate, we put them under. Or they were left to smolder for decades in pain and then die. But that was just... that it was necessary to save American lives as a lie. It's always about American lives, as if the owners of the country actually cared about them. But to tender hearts and innocent minds, it's a magic incantation. Poor us. They're always about poor us, right? There is simply no way to understand the savage nature of American history without seeing its demonic nature. How else can we redeem ourselves at this late day, possessed as we are by delusions of our own God-blessed goodness? But average Americans play with innocence. They excite themselves at the thought that with the next election, things will be restored to the right course. Of course, there never was a right course unless might makes right, which has always been the way of American rulers. So anyway, so there's more pictures in here. Take a look at it. Yeah, it was him. It was Johnson. Um, also, um, I wandered off on Cambodia. That Paul Pot lunatic, psychopath. Another French-educated Ho Chi Minh-type person. Don't ever have heroes, kids, because they'll turn out to be psychopaths and liars, okay? So, anyway, so I've documented Curtis LeMay as well as I could. Please remember this one thing. I'm not related <laughs> in any way. Because <laughs> um, he's usually listed as Curtis E. LeMay, but more specifically, it's Curtis Emerson LeMay. Okay, I have just a ton. I really went... I have a ton and ton and ton of pictures, okay? And 
He was very involved with Kennedy. Um, speaking of Kennedy, go over to my website, or if you're already there now, click on the link that says um, Hiding in Plain Sight. I have the video there that shows that Kennedy is really played by Jimmy Carter now. Okay, so I think that's it for um, Curtis LeMay. I documented a ton of pictures. Um, Cold War. General Curtis LeMay, father of the Strategic Air Command. After the war, um, yeah, he did a lot. I'll, I'll let you go over there and read. Um, I already did a show about this guy, so I'm pretty sure. And also, I, I listed all of his medals that he's won. I got a little distracted, so they're kind of out of order. But anyways, that's Curtis LeMay. Let's move along here. Um, next one. Okay. I had one more, didn't I? What do you think Curtis given me? Yeah, I guess I got them all. Okay, let's move to the timeline then. That's where we are. This is timeline of eugenics and methods used to destroy our DNA. So, um, and this is very much under construction, okay? Um, so, I, here I started off looking into the Nobel Peace Prize, okay? I thought, well, I was going to do four tabs. I was going to do the Kissinger, the LeMay, and the other one, and the Blackrock, and the Nobel. But as I started wandering through this Nobel thing, it got more complicated, <laughs> greatly complicated, because there's a lot of key points here that tie in. So anyway, so I started off with information and I document everything about the noble family, okay? Um, and this is really key because remember, um, this is how the eugenics program got going. And if you look again, noble was introduced to this chemist who had invented nitroglycerin, which was a key component in 1847. I still contend that this eugenics program they got started around these time frames and i'll show you some interesting patterns in all of this but anyway so um yeah so um how this all happened i've got it all documented here okay and um from the nitroglycerin and all that kind of stuff okay because i started looking at the noble family and the noble family wanders into russia here so <laughs> it's it's quite a story so let me just stick with giving you an overview here, okay? Um, because my goal is give you an overview and have you go look, okay? Um, because there's something about how all of these dates start to connect, okay? And um, because I, I thought the guy just gave the prize and I've talked in offhanded ways about, oh, you know, the guy that did the Nobel Peace Prize, he invented dynamite, right? It, but when, once I started looking, I was like, whoa, <laughs> these people did more than just invent dynamite. They were into oil and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, so this family story. So I start off this section with his family story, okay? And what happened basically was that... Um, supposedly one of his relatives was killed in an explosion <laughs> from his early work with dynamite 
and the, the newspaper article read, the merchant of death is dead. They thought that the person that died was Noble, the Albert Noble, the Peace, Peace Prize guy, right? But it was his brother, because his brother, Alfred Noble, was um, the one who did all these inventions and stuff. His brother, early on, was experimenting with dynamite, blew himself up. They printed an article saying the merchant of death was dead, supposedly, that alarmed Noble so badly that he went on to create this Nobel Peace Prize to make sure that his image stayed intact. Well, <laughs> so I started looking around at well, what, 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 what exactly did they do, okay? So dynamite and this radiation stuff all got started by these noble people, right? So that's how they ended up with me wandering through all this other stuff, okay? Um, because he wanted to do this prize to improve his legacy. So before we get to his legacy, because I'm working with a monster file, I, I insert into this, just to give you a little background about the nobles, okay? Because it gets going good in a bit about the nobles and their stuff in Russia and all that. But first, to give you a little perspective, I think we're looking at, well, the game board has probably been here for a long time, okay? Everybody was coming down here for their spiritual whatever development on this game board, divided up into countries or whatever. The psychopaths, I think at this key point, probably with the city of London took over, um, when the city of London happened, 1800s, 1700s is when I think the psychopaths took over. And I'll explain to you why, because of some big fires going on in London, okay? Because when I'm looking down this file, are mass destruction of life, like big fires, big earthquakes. Just keep in mind, all natural disasters are created by these people, right? So that's why you'll see the same group. Um, I started to see patterns of, like this country would get hit with a hurricane, and then 100 years later, another hurricane, right? So my little exercise in putting together this complete timeline is, well, first of all, nobody likes a good timeline better than I do. <laughs> nobody likes looking at photos better than I do. <laughs> so, um, it was actually very interesting because pre-COVID, with all this mass business, they were into the mass several disasters before this, okay? So probably what happened was they took over about that point, so they probably made up these other pre-parts, right? So I kept kind of going back in dates a little bit because I'd find like this plague in London. Then I find the one before that. So here's where I kind of landed, okay? Just to start off this little exploration here. I started off in 1347 with the Black Death, okay? Which was the first real big, they called it a gruesome pandemic, okay? 25 to 50 million people were dead, okay? And 1347. So, and this was nearly 700, um, 700 years after the Black Death swept through Europe, and the Black Death was in 1347. It still haunts the world as the worst case scenario for an epidemic called the Great Mortality as it caused its devastation, the second great pandemic of bubonic plague 
also became known as the Black Death in the late 17th century. So Black Death, they always have all these other names too, right? Okay, Black Death in the 17th century. Modern genetic analysts suggested that the bubonic plague was caused by the bacterium something. Chief among its symptoms are painfully swollen lymph glands that form boils called baubles. Sufferers, al sufferers also face fever, chills, headaches, shortness of breath, hemorrhaging, bloody sputum, vomiting, and delirium. And if it goes untreated, a survival of 50%. During the Black Death, three different forms of the plague manifested across Europe. So they said the Black Death emerged, spreads via the Black Sea. And this was, remember, we're talking 1347, okay? So there's a lot here to look at, okay? Because I found people, other people who obviously like timelines, have done a lot of timelines. Oh, I forgot to mention. If you want to find out like where I got this particular timeline, all you do is copy and paste like a whole paragraph from this page here, right? And put that into search. That will lead you back to where I got it from, okay? Because everything is like interconnected. S someday if I had like a research assistant, ideally every link would be quoted. But <laughs> So anyway, so this goes through the history of this death, okay? Some very interesting stuff as far as when the Black Death reaches London, Scotland, and beyond, okay? So leaves half of Europe dead, okay? So what's after the Black the black Plague, okay? Then, and this is a real interesting one, 1665, the Great Plague of London is 1665. <laughs> okay, the last major outbreak of the plague in England, okay, was the Black Death. King Charles left the city during this great plague of 1665, okay? Over 100,000 people died in or around London. And then they said about 40,000 dogs, 400,000 dogs and 200,000 cats were killed. You'll notice that there's some typos in some of these things. I didn't, I didn't come up with these graphics, so <laughs> I'm not going to get changed. But anyway, so what happened was this. This plague hit. Now, I would argue, I'm just guessing now, what kicked off these plagues? Well, I don't know, probably some poison or something in the water, right? If you're going to get rid of half the population, I mean, I'd be poisoning the water well or something. <laughs> so, because the king left town, so why do you leave town? Well, maybe to make sure he didn't drink any of the poison, right? I don't know. But anyway, so what's interesting is this, because the, the numbers, it ended in 1666, those three sixes, right? They love those numbers. So that was that, the Great Plague of London in 1665, okay? Um, so the Great Plague killed 100,000, okay, I talked about it. So because London had an expanding population of about 460,000 and it killed about 100,000, so that was about 25% just in the city of London. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so they had that plague there, okay, so now we move down, and I got all the information, somebody did a great job with the graphics and all this stuff, all the information, so all that's there, okay. Now this is where it gets interesting. What did they introduce during this great plague? Well, masks, masks, M-A-S-K-S, -S, right? 
But the masks that they introduced look like uh, bird beaks, like a beak that a bird would wear. So you really need to go look at these pictures for yourself because they were these, um, they called them um, 17th century plague preventative masks. The use of masks was also employed during the outbreak of the plague, but not in the way we may assume. Normal individuals were not wearing masks, doctors were. The plague mask has become a distinct visual of early modern medicine, but why was it worn? Yeah, I used to see pictures of, it looks like they're wearing a bird's beak on their face, okay? And that was before the actual mask. So, and that was worn by the doctors, okay? So, um, they, um, this Charles Dolores, the doctor who came up with this mask, he said, um, let me see, half a foot long, shaped like a beak, filled with perfume, with only two holes, one with each side near the nostrils, but that can suffice to breathe and carry along with the air one breathes the impression of the herbs enclosed along in the beak. So yeah, that's why they say that in um, I used to look into Venta's jewelry years ago, and some of those old um, brooches and stuff, they could put perfume in them, so if you're walking along a street that smelled, the brooch would have some perfume in it that you could hold up to your nose to hide the smell. So these beaks were like, you know, they held uh, herbs and stuff, so they it actually keep the doctors from smelling stuff, right? So yeah, and the interesting thing is, is just the graphics of these things. And so I, all those are there for you to take a look at this <laughs> bird. It looks like a raven, okay? A raven in black robe with a raven. So anyways, um, the reason doctors adorn this mask filled with herbs was because of the belief in miasmas or bad smells. The dominant medical theory at the time stated that disease was spread through miasmas, which is smells. Thus, by filling their masks with nice-smelling herbs, doctors ensured the disease could not be passed on to them while working with patients. So, yeah, there's a lot to what they put in these masks and all that kind of stuff. So, um, lots of people were killed, okay? And then, what do we have next? <laughs> we have the Great Fire of London, which curiously was on 1666. The Great Fire of 1666 swept through the capital, leaving a trail of devastation and desperate Londoners behind it. So, why did that happen? Well. There were wooden houses that were covered with tar, which would make them quite flammable, narrow streets, insanitary and overcrowded, hot summer, no water resources, and they only had neighborhood bucket brigades to deal with fires. So, um, I guess the most famous quote at the time was, when the mayor of London, a Thomas Bloodworth, was woken up and told about the fire, he replied, Psh! their favorite world, right? <laughs> um, so, um, on September 2nd, 1666, here again we have 9 2 6 6 6 6 
a tiny spark in a bakery oven ignited the worst fire that London has ever seen. Some of the poorer houses had walls covered with tar, which kept. A major fire had broken out at El London's Elephant and Castle tube stations. Okay. Oh, that was my caption. Wait a second here. Um, so... So they put out all these fires, and you can go read all this stuff. I'm not going to read, but but anyway. So there was a huge, huge fire in London. Okay, in 1666. Curious, right? So the fire gutted the medieval city of London inside the old Roman city wall. It threatened, but did not reach the city of Westminster, today's West End. A major fire has broken out at a railway station in London on Monday afternoon. A major okay, um, so a major fire broke out at London's Elephant and Castle tube station is what you're looking at. Okay, Great Fire of London was in 1666 in September. London had been burning for four days. Eighty percent of the city burnt in that fire. Kind of a new way to start off a new fresh start, right? <laughs> Set it on fire, they take us over, right? Could be a key point. Okay, so, um, Great Fire of London, the worst fire in London's history. It destroyed a large part of the city of London. Remember, I've been talking about the city of London, a key point. City of London, Washington, D.C., and the Vatican, including most of the civic buildings, old St. Paul's Cathedral, 87 parish churches, and about 13,000 houses. So it began accidentally in the house of the King's Baker in Pudding Lane near London Bridge. A violent east wind encouraged the flames, which raged through the entire whole of Monday and part of Tuesday. On Wednesday, the fire slackened. On Thursday, it was extinguished. But on the evening of that day, the flames again burst forth at the temple. Some houses were at once blown up by gunpowder. And thus, the fire was finally mastered. So, um, within a few days of the fire, three different plans were pressed to the king for the rebuilding of the city. None of the plans to regularize the streets was adopted, and consequently the old lines were in almost every case was retained. Nonetheless, the great work was the erection of St. Paul's Cathedral and the many churches ranged around it as satellites. Huh. So, burned down all those houses, burned down all those churches, and this one they seem to like, the St. Paul's Cathedral for some reason, that thing got restored. Huh, funny how that worked, right? Funny, funny, funny. One way to get rid of your records is certainly to burn them up, right? So, okay. Um, so, I also have, and I'll, I'll keep moving along here, but I want to point this stuff out because it's pretty critical, okay? Because this is where I think that things may have made a pretty big change, okay? The history of the United Kingdom 
began in the early 18th century with the Treaty of Union and Acts of Union. The core of the UK as a unified state came into being in 1707 with the political union of the kingdoms of England and Scotland into a unitary state called Great Britain. So, and then I have all the dates here. Certainly not going to read them all, but anyway, so here's the date we're looking at here, right? This key point, 1707, right about the time after all these fires and stuff, right? Good way for a fresh start. Okay, so... Um, the UK was created in 1801 because of the Irish Rebellion. Um, anyways, I have all the dates here. Um, so, key point there. Key, key point there. Okay, so what happens next that I have here? Look at City of London. Because there's three parts of London. The City of London, which is a world all of its own. Just like the Vatican is a world all of its own. City of London, East End, and West End. Okay, and there's all maps for you to take a look at. Okay. Behind it all lies the city of London, anxious to preserve its access to the world's dirty money. The city of London is a money laundering filter that lets the city get involved in dirty business while providing it with enough distance to maintain plausible deniability. A crypto-feudal oligarchy, which of itself is captured by the international offshore banking industry. It's a gangster regime cloaked with the respectability of the trappings of the British establishment. Guaranteed protection. No matter how just naked excuse me, no matter just how nakedly lawless is their own conduct. The city is often now described as the largest tax haven in the world and acts as the largest center of the global tax avoidance system. An estimated 50% of the world's trade passes through tax havens and the city acts as a huge funnel for much of this money. And then what I found interesting is the symbolism in all this, right? The city of London is symbolized by all of these dragons. Yeah, dragons. Yeah. They like those dragons. Dragons are their satanic symbolism, right? Okay. Um, the dragons seem to have derived from the legend of St. George, whose cross has been a city emblem since the, at least the early 14th century. So it may have been specifically linked to a popular misconception that a fan-like object bearing the cross on earlier crests was a dragon's wing. The city dragon is often incorrectly called a griffin or gripon, even in some official literature. It is not clear how the confusion arose, but the misnomer has become so entrenched that some authorities consider it to have earned a degree of legitimacy. So, yeah, so you're looking at, it is actually a dragon. I also was confused, that's why I went looking, right? You always look if you don't know, right? <laughs> so... And here's where I'm going to be scrolling down here because here again we tie into a, another key thing, okay? They're all about the symbols, right? Okay. So, why do dragons guard the city of London? That's a question I had. And you'd be surprised if you go over the index and start just popping in questions what you'll come up with. You'll find other people may have been nosing around about the same things, right? 
And here we come up with another very key date, right? Because now we have, because here's, here's the, the past history. They say the city of London is the original heart of London, having been established by the Romans in 55 BC. The city of London is surrounded by dragons. And I have a photo that shows one of the two dragons original from the coal exchange. These two dragons lived under the entrance to the coal exchange in Lower Thames Street until it was demolished in 1863. After that, they took up residence on either side of the Victorian embankment. So you know something happened in 1863, right? Because they moved those creepy dragons over to their new location, right? So the ancient city, the ancient city of London is protected by dragons that guard the main roads into the city from perfidious invaders. To help manage the trade in coal in 1847, wait a minute, I think I lobbed off the wrong type here. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you'll find a lot of orphan sentences. I call them orphan sentences where I maybe one article I may have plugged in. Uh, it may look like it's one article, but I may have captured quotes from other articles that I plugged into that one. In some articles, I also went back and I found some pictures that made it more relevant so I plugged in pictures from yet another piece so like I said <laughs> just <laughs> copy and paste and you'll find where I got my sources from so anyway so um, so yeah I did follow this train of thought so in 1847 good okay okay where can I see dragons in London city of London these original dragons can be found at the Victorian embankment Half-sized replicas can be found at High Hol Holborn, Harrington Street, Aldergate, Moorgate, Bishopgate, Aldgate, London Bridge, and Blackfire Bridge. So yeah, big deal with these dragons. Mark with cast iron dragons in the street. The boundaries of the city of London stretch north from Temple and the Tower of London on the River Thames to Chancellor Lane in the west and Liverpool Street in the east. So yeah, I have lots of photos. You can certainly go over there and explore the world of dragons, which I find interesting as far as their symbolism because I've been talking about these dragons being their satanic symbolism, right? <laughs> okay, um, and also I pulled apart some of the symbolism of these things. But remember the dates we're looking for, right? Somehow that wall goes down. Somehow the city of London seems to come into play here after a big, huge fire where lots of people get wiped out. And also... There's something to these flags, and uh, anyway, so yeah, it's how these people mark their territory and stuff, okay? And also, I found some interest. I mean, they, they ride around in the city of London wearing red coats. <laughs> their, their uniforms are red coats, okay? Red, like Saturn, right? And uh, they, they ride around in gold carriages. They, they really think a lot of themselves. That's why they give themselves all these awards and stuff, to make us believe that they're these elevated type personalities. <laughs> really, they're psychopaths, right? Let's, let's keep the spade a spade, right? <laughs> so it's kind of funny. It's one way to dress up a pig now, isn't it? You act like it's got some shoes on and some lipstick. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, so anyway, so you will find... Um, 
everything that I've talked about in the past as far as it was Londonium when it was part of the Romans and then that wall and all that kind of stuff happened. Yeah, there was something there. Um, there was something there at that particular time and why in particular did all those fires have happened. So, and you know, there's a lot of articles that I have posted here as far as how they're controlling all the world's money and all that kind of stuff. And so, they say uh, the Rothschilds have traditionally chosen the Lord Mayor since 1820. So, um, it could be possible about the Rothschilds, but they, they want to focus it all toward the Jew part of it, right? So, but the, the, the one Rothschild opened a money lending business on Judah Street, which is also called Jew Street, in Frankfurt, Germany, in 1750 and changed his name to Rothschild. So it was Mayor Amschild Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, changed his name in 1750 to Rothschild. Meyer Rothschild had five sons. Nathan, anyway, I'm not going to get into all of them, but anyway, here again, we're looking at a date. Rothschild, Frankfurt, Germany, 1750. Huh around the same time after the records have been cleaned up with fires and stuff, right? So yeah, there's a whole rule people people think these people belong to. I'm not going to be over-editing it because, I don't know, they, they talk about these committees of 300 and all this stuff. I don't really know. Um, but I do believe that leads us to a pretty good time to take a look at and start to focus on who's the rulers, okay? So next, I started thinking about these treaties that are always being broken by the U.S. government, right? Any treaty that they made with the Indians, they broke, right? Wait a second, turn on a second, the computer. Ever since they landed, let's say they came over to this country on the game board, they came over here and set up this country, right? Well, what do you think happened? Well, it appeared like they showed up in a murderous rage and a lot of Indians got driven off their land and murdered, right? So. What I decided to do after I was looking at all this other stuff was to then reel it back to these people being like the invaders to this country, right? Because I believe those same people who set up the city of London set up this country to be their robbing, looting vehicle, right? And I've got all the documentation here about when this place became a corporation, all that kind of stuff. But first I start off with what they first appear to do when they got here, okay, well, that was to seize the territory, right? Steal and cheat and all that kind of stuff. Because that's what their thing is, right? That's what their thing is. Their thing is, um, their thing is, their thing is always stealing, right? And this is Donald Trump talking about we should have kept the oil in Iraq. Thank you. 
always, always the hero, right? <laughs> always the hero, always the hero. Now, is that, is that an attitude or not? Okay, that gave me a chance to take a break here. Oh, wait a second. Also gave me a chance. Oh, I was looking at this file. Okay. I thought I was, I'm so used to looking at Word files. I, did, I forgot I was at the website. Okay. Yeah, well, they say it right in the open. I mean, why do people keep wanting to argue with them, right? When you're a crook and you say you're a crook, I mean, what's there to argue about? Okay, so then I reeled back here. Because what I found interesting was I was setting this up over um, on my website so I could kind of interact at the same time and plug things in and work on this major timeline. So I started out looking by, you know, territory acquisitions and all that, and I found some interesting, you know, they, and I wanted to verify these things, right, before I made statements about them. As long as the United States has negotiated treaties with indigenous nations, it has broken those treaties. There is a popular tendency to think of these treaties as innate artifacts of the distant facts, but it is not the fact. And what I did was somebody else luckily had put together so a list of the worst broken treaties, okay? Of the nearly 307 treaties negotiated between the U.S. and tribal leaders, this group called Stacker has compiled a list of 15 broken treaties negotiated between 1777 and 1868 using news, archival documents, and indigenous and government historical reports. So this was a great, great study to find. And what this does is it gives us more times to work with. So right over there, they're overcooking up this other stuff. And are these dates right? Well, I don't know, give or take 100 years or so, maybe. So anyway, so what they did was they captured um, um, what they did was they captured what treaties uh, so um, and most of these treaties were uh, sadly, um, well, they were all broken. And basically, um, they um, took on a life of their own as far as the pain. Because what took place after that was the desire to integrate these, these um, Indians into what they perceived as their own culture, right? So. What happened then was, I consider a lot of these children were probably stolen, okay? So, because from the beginning of the colonial period, Native American children were particularly vulnerable to removal, removal by colonizers. Captured children might be sold into slavery, forced to become religious Naviets, made to perform labor or adopted as family members by Euro-Americans. 
although some undoubtedly did well under the new circumstances, many suffered. In the 19th century practices, it was forcing children to attend boarding school as a continuation of these earlier practices, and that is a legacy the U.S. has still, to this day, not really dealt with. Before the 20th century, social welfare programs were, for the most part, the domain of charities, particularly religious charities. By the mid-20th century, however, government institutions had surpassed charities as the dominant instruments of providing well-being. Because here again, what started this country? Well, a preacher, a doctor, a sheriff, and the public, right? Each town, big or small, that was the structure, right? As with other forms of North American civil authority, most responsibilities related to social welfare were assigned to state and provincial governments, which in turn developed formidable child welfare bureaucracies. These were responsible for intervening in cases of child neglect or abuse, although caseworkers often tried to maintain the integrity of the family children living in dangerous circumstances were generally removed. The prevailing models of well-being used by children's services personnel reflected the culture. So I will leave this for you to read through. It is a very uh, interesting, very sad, but it's a part of the population that we need to understand because, um, well, it got sold as this thing that, well, they're all savages, you know, they, they don't know how to raise their kids, so let's, let's take over their kids, and people all went along with this. So they were essentially chased down and taken off reservations and sent to these 300-some boarding schools run by the government around this country. So, um, yeah. Um, so, anyway, so... Well, look at the same pattern is going on now, right? They go into these countries like Iraq. What's going on with the children in Iraq? Well, they're all being born with deformities and stuff. So the children are the ones that always end up the ones that they're out to destroy. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, and then they came up with these child welfare acts. And I, I'm not going to read you everything, but I have it all documented here, okay? Because the whole deal was this. Strip them of their language, strip them of their backgrounds, strip them of that. And then, just for your viewing information, I documented, you might ask yourself, well, gee, Indians really got a rough shake. I wonder if all these treaties, after all those treaties got broken, what happened after that? Well, I've got some pictures there for you to take a look at because this is what happens when you negotiate a deal with the U.S. government is you end up living in a broken-down trailer in the middle of nowhere, okay? And some of them were even giving those toxic Katrina trailers. They're not going to go there now. But anyway, so and I found a really interesting interactive map which shows from the 1700s, time we just can't seem to get away from, and then also um, when was the first mental hospital in America? Well, 1752. The Quakers, religion, right? Okay, now I'm starting to track the major deaths. And I didn't start with the things they made up, like, oh, biblically, millions of people lost in the flood, or so-and-so, 13, you know, 3 AD, this happened. I, I started with what I could grasp, okay? So I started around the 1770s. 
there was a major famine in Bengal, which became India, right? 10 million dead, 1770, okay? And Bengal has had several famines, largely ruled by the English-owned East India Company. So the reports of severe drought and crop shortages were over were ignored and the company continued to increase taxes on the region. Farmers were unable to grow crops and any food that could be purchased was too expensive for these starving Bengalis. The company also forced farmers to grow indigo and opium as they were much more profitable than inexpensive rice. Without large rice stocks, people were left with no food reserves and the ensuing famine killed 10 million of them. Okay, that was 1770, okay, 1783, North America Treaty of Paris. Um, oh, this was interesting, 1791, because I looked for um, when was the first bank in the United States. 1791, there was a bank called the First Bank of the United States. It was a national bank chartered for a term of 20 years, starting in 71, but it went defunct 
another interesting point, I've, I've done shows about this, 1854, what happened then? Mass movement of children on trains, that was when they had the orphan trains. They operated between 1854 and 1929, relocating about 200,000 no, children that we know of, okay? Most of these children were, I believe, stolen from immigrants, okay? Um, so this was the orphan train movement was the forerunner of the modern American foster care system and led to the passage of child protection and health and welfare laws. The children were placed on displays in local train stations and placements were frequently made with little or no investigation or oversight. Um, but they were basically, uh, the train movement was based on the theory that the innocent children of poor Catholic and Jewish immigrants could be rescued and Americanized if they were permanently removed from depraved urban surroundings and placed with upstanding Anglo-Protestant farming families. So... 1856, Second Opium War. I'm starting to see the pattern here. 1859, the Nobel Brothers. Okay, here's interesting. 1861, the American Mafia, commonly referred to in North America as the Italian American Mafia. The Mafia, or the Mob, is a highly organized Italian American criminal society and organized time group. 1861, it was founded in this country. Okay, what happened else in 1861? Well, lo and behold, Civil War time frame. Good they had the mafia in place, right? Civil War, 1861 to 1865. I believe Civil War, a good time that a lot of people happened to go missing, right? Um, I've got timelines over here for you to take a look at. Do you believe that these people went missing? Or do you think they got killed in the Civil War? So, um, the road to the Civil War, what led there? Well, they had the Missouri Compromise in 1820. They had the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. They had all these things going on, right? So, and secession was in 1860. So, yeah, a, a date that has 18 and 60, right? So, um, and then I've also dug up people that also love lists came up with the 10 bloodiest battles of the Civil War. Well, maybe not all these people were soldiers fighting the Civil War. Maybe these were people who very much objected to what was going on and came out fighting, right? So they got listed as casualties. These people have a horrendous record of keeping track of things. So I would suspect any casualties had to be much lighter. So if you look at what was the overall population population of the U.S. at the time of the Civil War, well, I don't know, but if I had had the brains, I would have looked. But then you compare it to how many people were killed and how much property, because remember, wars are about us getting killed and property getting stolen, right? So I would suggest during this time frame, a lot of people who may have disagreed went missing, a lot of property got stolen, because in 1862, they come up with the Internal Revenue Service. So, okay. And then, um, also, what I started this whole thing with, the Nobel people, they started a company in St. Petersburg, 
Russia. And you see where I'm going with all this in a minute. So we have the Nobel engineering people in Russia, 1862, okay? And then, um, let's see, 1864, one of the Nobel brothers in a letter said to his brother, petroleum has a bright future, 1864, okay? So, and one of the brothers starts a lamp and lamp oil warehouse in Finland, okay? So they're starting to move in on the oil and stuff, right? 1865, guess what happens? Lincoln gets shot. Remember that whole fishy story with Lincoln getting shot at the theater? And I came up with some other people who had other interesting timelines about interesting, surprising reaction to Abraham Lincoln's death in this country. A lot of people didn't think he was dead at first. They thought it was just another rumor. And then people thought it was great. Some people mourned it. I've got a lot of documentation here about it all. And some people wanted to grab his mementos to sell them as souvenirs. See how this country operates? Okay, so here we get interesting. So Lincoln's dead, right? Supposedly. And that's what kicked off those whole um, Pinkerton people. The Pinkerton people were involved in Lincoln. Anyway, not going to go there now. But anyway, so... Um, What happens in 1866? Well, funny you should ask. Our birth certificates become federal banknotes. <laughs> I've talked about this in other shows, but here I've documented it all for you to take a look for yourself, okay? So, the American Banknote Building is a subsidiary of American Banknote Corporation, and products range from currencies and credit cards to passports, driver's license, and birth certificates. In the USA, citizens have never obtained their original birth certificates. What they possess is a copy. Furthermore, these copies have a serial number on them issued on special bank bond paper and authorized by the American Bank note company and I have a I found a uh, photograph of exactly what it looks like so up in your upper left hand corner of your birth certificate you have a number okay and that number is from the American bank note company okay 1866 our birth certificates <laughs> became theirs the original birth or naturalized record for every U.S. citizen is held with Washington, D.C. and the property and assets of every living U.S. citizen is pledged as collateral for the national debt. Every citizen is given a number, the red number on the birth certificate, and each live birth is reported to be valued at 650000 to 750000 Federal Reserve dollars in collateral from the Fed. Hence the saying, we are owned by the system, literally. So, um, the government recognizes two distinct classes of citizens, a state citizen and a federal citizen. There are hundreds of thousands of sovereigns in the United States of America. Um, let me see. 
okay, the sovereigns, this is how it gets tricky, okay? Because here, here, let me just give you my view of this, okay? What they did at this point was they tricked us with these birth certificates the lawyers did, okay? There are ways that legally you can get yourself out of the system, okay? But before you start running off all wild-eyed thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to, get out of the system, I'm going to take care of this today, I'm going to learn how this all works. Well, welcome to the biggest rabbit hole on earth, okay? And here's why I would advise you to think very carefully, and I'm not advising you what to do, I'm just saying what to think about, right? Sure, you can go and make sure that you own all your own land. You can make sure that this birth certificate doesn't own you, but the steps involved in making sure all this happens involve turning over your records to the police department and the government to say that you are a sovereign person. I personally, with everything that's going on, I'm not sure that anyone would want to encourage more government or police contacts, right? So if you want to set yourself up as the person in town who has freed yourself from these people, then good for you. Send me a memo later and tell me how it works out because you could be putting a target on your back. Will you put a target on your back? I don't know. But before you charge off and do something, I would consider what the downside because these sovereign people are likely all over these chat rooms and stuff, right? Egging you on. Hey, go take it back. Well, it seems to me we're kind of in the final chapter of this thing. And I am in no way telling you what to do, but all I'm saying is the final steps involve <laughs> reporting all of this. So just go there with full knowledge, okay? So um, what it says, um, um, so yeah, what they say is they do not need to register their cars or get a driver's license unless they drive commercially. They'll not have to get help. So there's this big uproar going on now. And like I said, um, Enter it at your own open eyes, okay? So, um, and then I did some definitions here for you to take a look at um, of commodity, because we are, in fact, commodities, right? Um, so, U.S. citizens are owned by the U.S. Federal Reserve, a note in the stock exchange being traded as a commodity. The note is printed by the American Bank Note Company. So, um, to the editor of New York Times, let me see. So, yeah, there's complete documentation of, I wouldn't be telling you this or putting this on my website if I thought that it was all crazy talk, right? I'm just saying that part of this could become crazy making <laughs> if you decide you want to become sovereign because there could be some pretty big loopholes, but I'm not here to discourage you. I'm just here to say think, okay? Thinky, thinky for yourself, right? So, um, because here's what happened, okay? The U.S. declared bankruptcy, okay? And I have the documentation here further down, okay? Because when the U.S. declared bankruptcy, it pledged all Americans as collateral against the national debt. And that's when they confiscated all gold, eliminating the means by which you could pay it also assumed legal responsibility for providing a new way for you to pay, and it 
did that by providing what is known as the exemption. An exemption from having to pay for anything. In practical terms, though, this means giving each American something to pay with, and that something is your credit. Your value to society was then, and still is calculated using, using actuarial tables, and at birth, bonds, bonds equal to this are created. So, these bonds are collateralized by your birth certificate, which become a negotiable instrument. The bonds are hypothecated, traded until their value is unlimited for all intents and purposes, and that all credits created is technically and rightfully yours. In point of fact, you should be able to go into any store in America and buy anything and everything in sight, telling the clerk to charge it to your exemption account which is identified by a nine-digit number you will recognize as your social security number without the dashes. It is your EIN, which stands for Exemption Identification Number. Huh. We talked about this in the past. The Federal Reserve Bank is not owned or controlled by the U.S. government, so it's owned by the bankers. So, um, anyways, I also have some information. You can change your status, okay? All I'm saying is that I'm not sure it's a good move. But anyway, so moving along here. 1868. Um, oh, here's what I wanted. 1869. The first account of what became the Mafia in the United States dates to the spring of 1869. The Mafia. The New York... New Orleans Times reported that the city's second district had become overrun by well-known and notorious Sicilian murderers, counterfeiters, and burglars who in the last month had formed a sort of general co-partnership or stock company for the plunder and disturbance of the city. So this is very interesting because the mob enters Louisiana in 1869. Remember, Louisiana was the port that they didn't keep very good records on, right? So, uh, so immigrants from southern Italy to the Americas was primarily to Brazil and Argentina and New Orleans had a heavy volume of port traffic to and from both locales. So anyway, so in 1870, the Nobel person gets the prestige award of the Imperial Rus Russian Herald, the Double Eagle. So, 1870, the Nobels are being given their double eagle in Russia. So, and they also, they had a first steam car then. But anyway, so, now we get to the part that we need to focus on. 1871. The United States became a foreign corporation in 1871. Every day, the amount of people learning that the United States of America, the representative republic that it was, died when the southern states abandoned Congress forever in 1861 is increasing, along with the pain of finding that you've been steeped in lies through your entire education, there's still plenty more to cry about as you start putting the pieces together. Seriously, after this article, you'll feel the temptation to learn enough to go to slap your kids' teachers and professors around until they promise to make some kind of change or resign. 
trust me, if we're sending our kids to public schools today, we're not doing them any good. Sorry for the harsh words, but when we find out that the schools are really indoctrinating our kids to be slaves and stupid ones at that, yet we do it anyway, it's time to rethink our philosophy. When we fail to plan, we, fail to, we plan to fail. How can we say our kids have great teachers when they're teaching them bullshit and lies? That's what we think when we don't know the truth either. Ouch! Today's teachers are shoveling propaganda during an age of information with the real facts thumbing them in our eyes. There are no excuses and there's no reason to hear any. If it comes from public schools, public agendas, public media, or public servants, it's a stinking lie. Even the term public means private if it's connected to the United States because the United States is a private corporation. See what I'm saying here? So that's the distinction, right? We think it's public, but it is private. USA is a private foreign corporation, bankrupt corporation in city of London. And we wonder why the courts, cops, and banks are such despicable, inhumane pirates. They're holding you as collateral for the debt that they're growing, and they're doing the same to your kids with your help. I might add, so stop hitting the snooze button. So, um, so I don't know. There, there's this article about, um, I, like I said, I haven't really edited some of this stuff. Anyway, so here this got me back to the mob in Louisiana where the people came in without records because I found this article because I was looking at worst case things and it was the grisly story of a, one of America's largest lynchings <laughs> innocent Italian Americans got caught in the crosshairs of a bigoted mob so I thought well that is very interesting right so there were these lynchings of Italians in New Orleans right and um so, uh, the Prime Minister of Italy at the time demanded punishment of the murderers, and the U.S. refused. Italy's Prime Minister ordered the Italian ambassador home from Washington. Rumors now began to spread of Italian warships headed for the American coast. Confederate veterans, so it was a big deal that... Um, so, from Georgia, the War Department received an offer of a company of, a company of unterrified Georgia rebels to invade Rome, disperse the mafia, and plant the stars and stripes on the dome of St. Peter's. Interesting rumor, huh? Who makes up the rumors? Well, they of course do, right? Um, so, so the U.S. was having this diplomatic sparring, got the mafia here in New Orleans, um, and then what happens? Columbus Day. To appease the Americans, they gave us Columbus Day in 1892, and you, you must go and watch some shows about Columbus was really a slave trader, okay? So, so uh, that was that time frame, very important juncture, all these people there, right? Okay. So, what else is going on? The Noble family building a factory for weapons production. Russia. 1873, they're over there looking for things for weapons. Um, and this is an interesting one. 
Um, DDT. I've talked in the past about DDT. I believe the United States still manufactures DDT, but they claim it's for export, right? Well, I think you need to pay attention to DDT, and here's why. Uh, it was supposedly invented in 1874. And my, my concern's right up front, okay? Um, DDT is still being used in third world countries. DDT is also a uh, fat-soluble um, poison. The fat-soluble ones are the ones we learned with all the stuff with what's going on in Ohio, right? The fat-soluble ones are the ones that are dumping in our water. The dioxins, the most dangerous ones, are all fat-soluble, okay? What I learned when I found that DDT was uh, invented in 1874, I didn't really know much about DDT, so I looked into it. <laughs> and boy, <laughs> glad I did. Because DDT is, I believe, as bad as the other stuff that everybody claims is so bad right now. But somehow, they're still allowing it to be used in third world countries. Because it started off um, with these major campaigns to convince us that DDT was good for us. Uh, and because DDT is fat-soluble, it certainly should be on all of our radars, okay? If you're living anywhere near a DDT factory, probably not a good thing. Because I've captured some really interesting things from the time because this has all been about marketing, right? Um, they were actually uh, going out and uh, they were, because of the, um, they'd find overpopulation of things, so they'd say, oh, let's go and spray some DDT. And they would literally drive around in trucks and just spray DDT all over the place, right? So here's my big concern and why I'm focused on DDT is DDT, a chemical that has been lost in the conversation here with eugenics, <laughs> I think it has been, so I think we really need to focus on DDT. Um, so, because, you know, they were selling DDT marketed for babies, okay? They were doing spraying DDT all over people to show, and finally, um, they, were, they were spraying it from planes. People on beaches were being sprayed, I mean, literally <laughs> spraying big funnels of DDT. And um, all this was going on, right? And the thing about all of these um, chemicals and stuff is that what we've learned from the nuclear thing is that they're long-lasting, okay? You don't know if you got sprayed on the beach as a kid <laughs> in the 50s with DDT if that was the impact from your cancer later, right? Because they're, they're coming up with all kinds of stuff. So th there seems to have been an absence in any of the scientists looking into really DDT <laughs> because... I found some interesting conversations going on currently about DDT, and uh, I would really encourage you highly to look into DDT because manufacturers promoted it as a benefactor of all humanity. Th these ads featured sayings like, DDT is good for me. Americans spray more than 1.35 billion tons of the insecticide, nearly 7.5 pounds per person on crops, lawns, and pets, and in their homes before there was this biologist named Rachel Carson, okay, and she wrote this book, and it's all here if you take a look at it, okay, and, um, well, so, finally, they banned DDT in 1972, but my question to you is this, is it really banned? I don't get the idea it's banned, but anyway, so, because DDT seems to come up with the same issues, okay? 
mothers exposed to DDT get breast cancer. Anyway, DDT causes all the same kind of list of things that these other things. And then I just read yesterday that, um, and this was just from, let me see, there was a study I found. And um, there's this new study, the person called Cohen, and it said, on the exposed women's grandchildren, documents the first evidence that DDT health effects can persist for at least three generations. The study linked grandmothers' higher DDT exposure rates to granddaughters' higher body mass index and earlier first administration of both, which can signal future health issues. This study changes everything. We don't know if chemicals like PFAS, P-F-A-S, will have multi-generational impacts, but this study makes it imperative that we look. Only these long-term studies can illuminate the full consequences of DDT and other biologically disruptive chemicals to help guide regulations. Now, come on. Uh, so, so, I don't know what to tell you. Um, you need to go and look because I've got it all here, okay? Because <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, so somehow, this person wrote this book um, called, um, it said, fetuses produce all their egg cells before birth. So this person, Cohen, suspected these children's prenatal DDT exposure might also affect their own future children. So, yeah, um, it's a very interesting new study, but then you have to question yourself, didn't I just mention that DDT was, they came up with in the 1800s? <laughs> so, I'm really glad they're doing studies. I'm not, I'm not complaining about the studies. I'm just saying that, look at the time span between when we accepted them spraying this on us, right? Um, Laboratory studies, including one by Cohn, C-O-H-N is the word, in 2019, have shown that DDT and other EDCs can lead to effects cross-generations. Well, look at Iraq. I did that show about Iraq and all those kids over there. Um, so it just, see, this is why they put their own people in charge, right? Because then if nobody's looking, then they're not going to find out. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty amazing that all of this time. And in the past... I kind of brushed past, there was this incident, which was very recent, that they found a whole bunch of 25, let me see, I have trouble with numbers, um, 25,000, yeah, barrels of toxic industrial waste were found off the California coast, um, so they're leaking, there, there's these leaking drums of things, okay? Um, somebody in 2011 used some deep water thing, um, and in 2021, a group of scientists shared results, and they found 25,000 barrels uh, with DDT-laced industrial waste. Um, well, I'm not going to go into rampage land on this one, but um, I've got all the documentation here for you to take a look at it. Um, Okay, so the woman who started this all was a woman named Rachel Carson, okay? She wrote a book called Silent Spring, 
was published over 50 years ago and revealed the hazards of DDT to human and wildlife health. So, um, revealed the hazards. Um, currently, the World Health Organization and the Gates Foundation promote the use of DDT in developing countries in Africa for malaria control. The current day potential hazards of DDT exposures need to now be considered in light of the transgenerational actions of DDT. The various transgenerational diseases promoted by DDT include obesity, kidney disease, and ovarian disease. So these are all the diseases you get long term from exposure to DDT. Um, a more careful risk-benefit consideration of the use of DDT is needed since other options exist with less toxic shark life. So yeah, what they're saying is she wrote this book in 70, was it 70 something? And uh, said DDT is bad. The whole subject seems to have gotten dropped. And uh, now people are saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should look at these. When these chemicals first came on the market, they appeared almost miraculous. Thanks to marketing, right? In 1939, Swiss chemist Paul Mueller had shown that the compound DDT irradiated insect population. DDT sprayed from airplanes eliminated the malaria and dengue fever carrying mosquitoes that sickened and killed American soldiers in the Pacific Theater. Wartime successes led to post-war applications with chemical companies selling DDT to farmers to reduce crop loss to s s insects. How about if they get all those malaria bugs and stuff by putting in malaria eggs and stuff over in these countries, right? How hard would it be to grow crops of bugs to then bring in DDT to supposedly kill them with, right? Tropical nations used the compound to continue the fight against the mosquitoes that spread malaria. In the 1950s, the chemical industry created new pesticides and herbicides such as chlordane and heptachlor for killing insects. Well, but all this good news had a dark side, which Carson detailed in her 1962 book, Silent Spring. At the time, Carson was already well known for her bestseller, The Sea Around Us. So, um, the book did not condemn all chemicals, but inscribed her, she described herself as opposing the reckless and irresponsible poisoning of the world that man shares with other creatures. She showed how alfalfa spray DDT moved through alfalfa-fed hens and eggs and finally into egg-eating people. Yeah, um, so, anyway, so I have all the documentation here to take a look at, um, and they, you know, of course they're always looking at this stuff, right? Um, and like I said, I'm still editing all of this. So if you find loose ends, well, because I'm still editing. So, yeah, so in this book, 1962, she's talking about this stuff, right? Well, it doesn't appear to me that, it appears to me that they're just now starting to talk about it again, okay? And then here... I have marijuana and painkillers. Why? Oh, because they're opioids. I'll get to that in a bit here. That's an orphan deal. Okay. Uh, they say that um, what happens when people get off opioids is they go to heroin and other drugs. And everybody in this country is on some sort of drugs, but it's too big of a subject for right now. Um, anyways, they also did some interesting things with the DDT stuff because they showed soldiers rubbing DDT directly on their skin. <laughs> 
okay. Uh, as World War II propaganda. See, what they do is they always introduce these things as good things. Why do you think I'm always saying evil has to come packaged as help? So people think, oh, look, it helped those soldiers. Look, he's rubbing it on his skin. <laughs> Let, let's try some on the kids. Yeah, literally, mothers were putting this on tiny, tiny infants. Okay, so, yeah, they were spraying out the backs of trucks, and then they started realizing the environmental issues. But, so, malaria is a serious and sometimes fatal disease caused by parasite-induced mosquitoes when they feed on humans. And I have to argue, where are those disease mosquitoes coming from exactly? I believe that would be called... Ding, 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 bioterrorism, right? See, you do things in pretty subtle ways, right? Get a bunch of uh, mosquitoes jacked up on infections, turn them loose, get them to bite a bunch of people, now you got your disease, right? An estimated, in, in 2020, an estimated 241 million cases of malaria occurred worldwide. And 627,000 people died, mostly children in the African region. region. So, uh, while malaria is found in many countries, it is most commonly diagnosed in Sub-Sahara Africa and South Asia. Most countries where malaria is common have switched from DDT to other insecticides. However, not all of these attempts have been successful. In areas where malaria is undeterred by other insecticides, DDT may be the only way to control mosquito populations and reduce fatalities from malarial disease. See, here we go. The trade-off is, well, we lose a few people, we gain a few people, right? One concern regarding the use of DDT in certain areas of the world is that no country exists in isolation. When sprayed outdoors, DDT does not stay in a localized area. Traces of DDT have been recovered from dust known to have drifted over 600 miles and water melted from Antarctic snow. From the soil your food grows in to the rain falling in your backyard, DDT is still detectable. So, um, yeah, uh, there was a story at the tail end of World War II. This person, uh, they were in the house and they were spraying. Anyway, so, yeah, there's a lot. And, um, there's pictures of people spraying tiny, tiny infants with straight DDT. So, I don't know. I just ran across this whole DDT. That, that's why I put together this whole timeline to take a look at all this stuff, right? Like, how did it happen? So, my question is this. Because it absorbs in the um, fat tissues, which is what the dioxins become so deadly over. Now, I'm clearly not a scientist, but, but logic tells me that is DDT one of their chemicals that's kind of like hiding in plain sight that is being allowed to be used in Africa and all kinds of other places? I would argue that it probably still is. I need to look again, but I believe the United States is um, still manufacturing DDT for export. But don't quote me on that, okay? Look it up. I think that's that's what it was when I looked it up a few years ago, okay? That when I looked up DDT, what it was was that it's banned 
1972, but the United States is still manufacturing to help out these other countries. So, okay, so here's another interesting time frame here. 1875, okay? Um, we've already been owned by the government, all this stuff, but the Nobles, the Nova family is in Russia competing with Standard Oil, okay? Always have the two thing going on, right? Okay. So, um, yeah, and they're in Baku. That's part of Russia. This whole, each one of these little sections could be, <laughs> could evolve into months and weeks and months of discussion, okay? I'm sharing my work, especially at this point, knowing that I'm not going to be around here for a real long time, that I'd like to document as much as possible and please take what you find interesting and go from there because there is just a lot. So let me get back to, I was looking into Bangladesh, because see, I, I was confused between, you know, the, the Brits had India for all that time, right? And there was that whole thing during World War II that um, Churchill was, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but a lot of people were harmed in India. So as a result of that date, I started looking into other harm to India, because it's a huge population, right? Um, and I started finding some interesting patterns, because there was a um, cyclone, um, in the area we now know as Bangladesh, killed at least 200,000 people, and this is just an estimate, 1876. And what I'm documenting here was that this part of the world seems to keep getting hit with these things, right? So I believe these things are planned and executed, so that's why I'm documenting when and how they happen, right? October 31, 1876 the community of Chittagong in a part of India that is now in the nation of Bangladesh experienced a powerful cyclone that swept inland. Um, so out of these things um, is just a horrendous amount of disaster. And they may say, oh, these, these certain amount of people died and stuff. The, the impact of this cyclone in 1876 was devastating in every way. A hundred thousand people drowned and another hundred thousand people perished from diseases or famine. So these events, in my opinion, are the events that lead up to the killing sessions, right? So you cause an event like a hurricane or an earthquake and then a lot of people don't have access to food or whatever those resources are. Well, that is the next step in eugenics, right? But you kind of remove yourself from the first step because you can say, well, what did I have to do with it? It was an earthquake, right? So, yeah, so as part of this eugenics process they've used on us is they create the event, a lot of people perish, and then everybody can blame it on this quote-unquote natural disaster, and they can move in and benefit from destroying a lot of us, they can seize a lot of land, they can seize a lot of money. I mean, a lot of stuff <laughs> comes out of these things, right? So, okay, so that was Bangladesh. So, um, so, um, so that was 1870. So yeah, so Bangladesh gets hit then, part of India, right? 1877, so they're putting pipelines into Russia, okay? the Nobel Peace Prize, pipelines into Russia at the same time. And they're planning for paraffin. Paraffin's not good for the market, okay? Baku is an area you're looking for, B-A-K-U. That was the part of Russia that these Nobel people were hanging around. So, um, 
I'm going to swing past this noble stuff because they intersect here pretty dramatically. Um, so, what was the first vaccine? I always like these numbers. 1880. First vaccine for cholera. 1885. And then they got our pets with the first vaccine for rabies. 1890. First vaccine for tetanus, 1896. So yeah, um, and then I have a list of all the different vaccines that they spun off from there. Here again, they introduce the disease and then come in with the um, cure. Well, the cure is always deadly, right? So, uh, but they 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 rigged the cure so it's something that you don't catch on that the cure is what got you, right? <laughs> okay, um, so. Now I'm at the late 19th century, okay? And uh, this is where the Italians, the mafia, and all that stuff comes in, okay? By the end of the 19th century, New Orleans was one of the most prosperous cities in the United States. The port shipped most of the agriculture goods from the south and was the port of entry for most of the imports from South America and Europe. It had close commercial ties, including Sicily, where it bought lemons and oranges, and it was also the largest producer of sugarcane and cotton. When many freed slaves moved north, Louisiana looked to southern Italy to fill those jobs. So slaves came in through Louisiana, okay? They started migrating, going north. So they started looking for southern Italy to fill those jobs, okay? So steamship companies recruited potential workers, and three steamships a month were running between New Orleans and Sicily by September 1881, charging $40 per person. So 1881, we have our Italians, also known as Romans, and to some people they think they're hiding as Jews, but we know they're Romans, right? So now we have the Italians coming in, we have the mob forming, <laughs> forming in New Orleans, we have them coming in by boat, Italian-Americans were often used as cheap labor on the docks of New Orleans at the turn of the century. So, Sicilians did not play by the unspoken rules. They lived among black Americans, worked with them, and hired them. They even started taking the jobs that white Americans wanted to work. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting point in time here that really needs a lot of exploration because at that key juncture remember money is being developed a lot of stuff is going on poor record keeping 1882 um you have to look at all this stuff about these noble people because you know it's i gotta kind of conserve my energy here for a second okay now here we get interesting 1887 i've been talking about the floods and things in China. My view is that Three Gorges Dam in China is set up to take out 40% of China. That dam was built with structure issues. So I was looking into the history of China and their dams, okay? 
1887, they had a Yellow River flood, okay? What happens is, um, is that they have these floods, okay? And then they say, well, because we had this floods, we need to build these dams, right? So that's how they historically have been doing these things. You create the flood, get everybody washed out of their homes and stuff, and usually always by very poor areas, right? Get them washed out of their homes and stuff. And then you say, hey, well, we got a solution for that. Let's build a dam. Well, then you wait until what's going on right now in Ukraine. My contention is dams and nuclear plants are, in fact, weapons hiding in plain sight. Anyway, so yeah, that's exactly how it works get us all to agree that dams and all this stuff is needed and necessary and nobody is paying attention to that dams create droughts. Dams are going to create a bunch of destruction soon because not only are dams a problem, it's having psychopaths running the dams because they don't maintain the dams properly. So even though dams are a bad idea to start with, having dams which are shoddy work and poorly constructed always lead to some sort of failure. And like I've said before, I've talked to them about dams, that they tend to, they seem to be on this thing to build the biggest dam. So I looked at what was the biggest dam problem in the United States. April 31, 1889, the Johnstown flood killed more than, they didn't have a huge death rate, it was like 2,000, okay? But uh, it was when the steel industry was at its height, it close to Pittsburgh, um, and it had to do with, it w experienced one of the most devastating floods in American history, so it's a huge, huge, huge deal, um, and it has to do with, um, there was 30,000 steel workers in this town, um, the town's residents were used, were used to frequent flooding when it rained heavily or when snow in the surrounding mountains melted too quickly, but they were not prepared for what happened on May 31st, 1889, when the South Fork Dam collapsed. According to history, when the dam was built in the 1940s, it was the largest dam in the United States. The structure of dirt and rock that held, it, that held the water of man-made lake stood 72 feet tall. The dam was an essential part of a canal system that was used to transport goods along the rivers of Pennsylvania before the Industrial Revolution. However, the introduction of railroads across America eventually replaced canals as the main means of transporting goods and the dam fell into disrepair as the maintenance was neglected. Yeah, um, th this thing was in 1879, it was built for an exclusive spot for wealthy members. There's a whole history to this that is interesting. But yeah, th because these people didn't maintain it, these rich people didn't maintain it, essentially. Uh, yeah, it broke. A lot of people got suffering. But remember, if you look at the logistics of how these things seem to be playing out here, is that one industry is getting ready to close up. So what happens? Oh, well, gee, that whole group of people got wiped out somehow, right? Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I can't even, oh, the development of radio came in in 1890s, okay, big deal. Remember, this is all, we spoke telepath, this is all existing stuff that, anyway, they certainly seem to roll it out at times, anyway, so, um, 
1895, that's a pretty big deal when they were introducing the, um, I pulled all the documentation of um, Albert Noble's will, his will that said that, the other thing about his will that needs more work is that um, when they leave these wills and bequests and say like, oh, I give all my money to charity to this Nobel Peace Prize, well, what they've really done is they've set up some sort of a shell game. <laughs> so that money really doesn't leave their family, okay? So anyway, so um, uh, I am going to do this. Let me see here what time is it. I am going to take a break here um, and pick this up. This is going very long, but I want to keep it all in one recording, so um, I will pick it up on the other end, uh, excuse me, on the other side, so um, give myself the time to take some breath. So. What's been going on is that, I mean, if you want to go on Google Maps, okay, uh, go on Google Maps and you can, it's really kind of fun because once you learn how to maneuver that little arrow around, um, you can actually tour around your own town. Like, for example, um, I was scanning around my area and uh, what I found was this. If you look down the lower right corner of the Google Maps, you'll find the date that that picture was taken by Google, okay? What I found interesting was that I was scanning around looking for, um, uh, looking for um, transformers, you know, a few months ago when I did that show, and I was looking for transformers around my neighborhood because I thought, why do I have this transformer? Do other people have these transformers? And what I found by scouring through my town was I found a few of those transformers, but they were over like in um, Norfolk, Nebraska is a decent sized town. Outside of Omaha, it's probably a bigger town outside of Omaha, but nowhere near as big as Omaha, okay? We're about an hour outside of Omaha. So it's a decent sized town. And um, so I was scanning around the streets and I found some transformers mainly over in the many industrial park areas, right? but I didn't find any, I found them on some streets, but none of them like parked like right next, like mine was, okay. So what I found interesting when I looked again this week because scanning around is kind of fun. So I was scanning around and I noticed the dates this time because I didn't, I didn't know to look for the dates. That's why I'm telling you to look for the dates. So what I noticed was this, was that my transformer date was 2019. And remember, this whole thing started in 2020. So I'm guessing that around that time frame, they were getting all the smart meters were going in, right? So I imagine the smart meters, I mean, excuse me, the transformers for the extra kick, you know, for the problem people like myself, um, would have gone in around 2018, 2019, right? So um, what, what was interesting was I looked down my alley where I could see the transformer and um, that's 2019. And then I go over to the next street, and the next street is like 2017. So why is my street 2019 with that transformer there? Don't know. But I do have evidence now that along my alleyway, which would make it very unusual for this area, there are now an additional three or four more transformers within my one block region. Now, has that impacted us? Oh, you bet it has. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good okay it's all good this is a game board so what did I do well 
I decided to just hunker down. So in the last couple of weeks, since it showed up and things have gotten very escalated, um, well, we're holed up in one particular room where we have, um, but you know, it's summertime here now. So now it's been like 90 degrees out. <laughs> I can't use the air conditioning. So, <laughs> so anyway, so, um, well, doing what we can to put one foot in front of the other hand. But yes, it is, um, somebody brutally wants to get me murdered, okay? Because um, four of them on my one block is pretty aggressive number of transformers, okay? But if you find any neighborhood around you that has a bunch of them, I'd sure like to know about it because I like scanning around looking at pictures and stuff, but I haven't seen any instances of these things so close to property. Now here's my major concern. My major concern is these people are reckless beyond being ruthless psychopaths, right? And I doubt that when they kill me that anybody will rush over here and remove these transformers, right? So I'm making sure they will get removed. But here's the thing is that um, eventually it's going to become suspicious when, you know, it appears to me that they start off with one transformer and now we're moving into a more aggressive approach toward me. But here's, here's what I did because... Clearly, luckily, I saw the trucks, okay, um, it was kind of a tactical mistake to park them over on this main street, because had they kept them back on the alley behind me, no way would I probably have seen them, right, because I'm in the front, so, and I'm handicapped, so, <laughs> so they made a tactical mistake by parting, parking right here, because of course it drew my attention, because it's the big trucks, right, the ones that used to work on the line, so I immediately started thinking, what are they installing around here, right, so, and which is so genius about this whole plot, because in the past, if you see an electricity company truck in your neighborhood, do you freak out? Well, probably not, right? You probably don't give it a second thought. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight is the evil genius of this whole thing, right? So because I happen to know about this, when I saw those huge old trucks, and I saw the one guy pass over between the houses, which led me to believe he was heading toward the back alley things. So, yeah, so, yeah, that was my key indicator. But then, of course, it took me a little bit of time to... Anyway, so I'm now 100% sure that they're out there, right? As sure as I can get, and I will have photos soon, but, yeah, we're moving into the accelerated range because, oh, boy, it's something else. So, um, yeah, so in every case... At least in my case, I can only speak for myself. I'm sure this act is obviously to silence somebody like myself, right? When in reality, I'm just a sweet little old lady living here in Nebraska, right? <laughs> so, here's the thing. We all signed up for the game board. This was my, my as a gig, as the kids would call it, right? So, you know, I just did my best to, when I saw that things were definitely accelerating, I thought, well, I've been thinking about doing these things over my website, to identify these <laughs> killing ranges, like who killed the most of us, right? Maybe I should start looking into some of this stuff now. So actually, it's okay because knowing that we're getting gunned even worse, I just had to keep focus <laughs> on, on putting all this together. So it's all good because the idea, I guess, is to accelerate, to de debilitate me. But here's the thing, it's very sad watching my pets being this sick, but you know, we're, we're putting one foot in front of the other foot. We, uh, we fully understand that, um, we fully understand that this is a game. Does that always, 
there? No, sometimes it's easy to slip out of that thing. Holy crap, why us, right? Especially when it's been 90 degrees out. <laughs> because here again, it'd be tempting to turn the air. Oh, here's one other thing. I also think, and I'll know more next month if I get my electricity bill, because this month I just got my electricity bill, right? Well, remember, this time last year, I was able to do a few more loads of laundry, probably engage a little bit more in the shower, <laughs> do a few more <laughs> dishes, so like that. <laughs> From that last year to this year, it has been a pretty dramatic decrease in my activities, right? Do you realize that I just got my bill for electricity? My electricity bill is 51% higher than my electricity bill last year. Keep in mind, haven't turned on the air conditioning, haven't turned on the heat, okay? 51% higher. So I suspect, and I could only suspect, that I am also being paid. <laughs> I'll know more next month, but here's my suspicion. I suspect that I'm also being charged <laughs> for this. And it kind of, it's pretty funny if you think about it, because I've said all along that the part that really gets to me about all this is that they would be nothing without us, and we have paid for our own demise. And how much better <laughs> if that, it turns out that having these transformers all around me, that the bill for the extra stuff that's going on is being charged to my account. I mean, isn't that just wonderful? Isn't that just wonderful? So anyways, I'm going to close off here and take a little bit of a break because this is going to take a while to get through. So anyway, so I will be back if I can figure out how to turn this thing off. So, oh, geez. Well, hello again. Um, I'm going to be picking up where I left off, but a couple things real quickly here. Um, I updated the Larry Fink Blackstone file, Blackrock file, Blackrock, yeah, Blackrock, and um, two people had Larry Fink's family history. I don't remember, I don't know who found it or who had it, but two people had it. So here again, just go over to Yandex and um, you'll find it. I, I, I pasted what is available in that section. So for now, Larry Fink still needs editing, but all the information is there. So you have everything you're looking for. I looked up the DDT, and I think it may still be manufactured in this country, but I got fuzzy information. Here's what's probably happening. They're anxious to get this, uh, let me see. DDT continued to be produced in the United States for foreign markets until eight, 1985, when over 300 tons were exported. I suspect there's money in this um, DDT could only be used in the U.S. for public health emergencies, such as controlling vector diseases. So I read this to be that if they need to, they could whip out the DDT. Um, and probably what's happening is these big companies making the DDT are probably making it in other countries, right? <laughs> so lots of ways to handle this thing. So let's get back here. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to go here. So, um, okay, where'd we leave off? Okay, 19... Now, excuse me, 1896, they had the first Olympics. Now, ask yourself this. Why the first Olympics? 1800s, right? And then I've got all this stuff that you can look through when Marie Curie tested samples of the elements, the radium, all that kind of stuff. Gamma was first introduced back then. 
which is interesting uh, because it later became known as radon uh, in 1900. So I have everything you ever wanna know about the process, okay? And that was the same time that Nobel actually died was during that time frame. Um, yeah, and you wanna look into 1899, Baku, B-A-K-U. The Nobel family was over there doing um, oil exploration. And they have a big um, church they built there in Baku, financed by the nobles. So Baku is where they were doing oil during that time to allegedly compete with standard oil, which was being produced in this country, right? So, um, and around that same time, they brought in Hollywood, okay? Okay, now here, <clears throat> here is a key place to focus. The 1900 Galveston hurricane what went on in Galveston. Galveston was the hurricane of 1900 became the deadliest U.S. natural disaster. Now just as an overview, Galveston was allegedly, and I've seen pictures of it, extremely well developed. The hub of this country was actually in Galveston. Now remember, people that came in through New Orleans got sent through Galveston, got sent to Texas, right? They got sent to Texas, Haiti, and uh, Cuba, the people that came in through Louisiana. So a lot of people got shifted into Galveston, and Galveston was this huge, huge deal, right? Well, in 1900, it got wiped out through a hurricane. So a Category 4 descended on the town, destroying more than 3,600 buildings with winds surpassing 135 miles per hour. Estimates of the death toll range from 6,000 to 12,000. Now, death toll is going to be uh, iffy because, uh, well, who was keeping track, right? So anyway, so basically what happened was, was that people in Galveston were basically not told, whoops, by a series of very crazy mistakes and so they got hit unexpectedly and this is what they're going to be doing to us anytime soon here now is the unexpected hit right when you least expect it so Galveston I have all the data there it's a great exploration of how one day Galveston was doing great okay and the next day Galveston in 1900 was brought to its knees and it was on um it started these dates are all important to these people okay galveston problems started on august the 27th 1900 and the extra tropical was september the 11th and dissipated september the 15th they're saying up to about 8,000 deaths but the main thing was remember a lot of those people that went to build Galveston would have been unaccountable people, right? Because they weren't keeping records in New Orleans. So who knows how many were dead, right? So in 1902, you got the uh, people from Nobel over in Russia, and that company in Russia, Branobel, is producing 10% of the world's oil, okay? 1902. Okay, um... 
And all these pipelines, I don't know if I'll get back to these pipelines, but right now in this country, they're planning all of these pipelines. Well, there's a lot of issues with pipelines that hopefully I'll get back to. And it mainly has to do with the chemicals they use in these pipelines. And there's a pipeline that's kind of exploded right here on the border of Nebraska. And I do have files on it, so maybe I'll get back to it. But anyway, so um, anyway, so they attempted to merge with Standard Oil around that time, too. All of these things start to become rather fishy, right? What's going on in um, um, Russia at the same time, right? And then in 1904, we have the Bank of Italy. Those Italians, those sneaky Italians, um, became Bank of America in San Francisco in 1904. And then we had just a lot of strikes and stuff going on. And what happened in Baku, Russia, I believe it was Russia, there was a lot of destruction in the oil fields, okay, and strikes. So the strikes forced the Nobel's office and works in St. Petersburg to close 1905. Conveniently, right? They'd been over there in Russia exploring and stuff. Well, 1906, huge earthquake in Ecuador. Um, tons of people were leveled. Also, <clears throat> same year, earthquake leveled San Francisco. I've talked a lot about the earthquake in San Francisco. Earthquakes are dynamite, okay, and robbery. San Francisco was a big opportunity to rob a bunch of land. Then 1907, there was a big famine in China. Um, took the lives of nearly 25 million people that they know of, right? The Great Chinese Famine, 43 million dead, much like the Soviet famine of 1932 to 1933, the Chinese, the Great Chinese Famine was caused by communist leaders attempting to force change upon an unwilling population. As part of their great leap forward, owning private land was outlawed in China in 1958. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of to do when they're closing off these countries. It appears to me, now remember I wasn't there, I don't think you were either, but it appears to me that huge populations of people seem to always come up either diseased, murdered, or missing, right? Because 1907 was a tragic year for the Swedish colony in Baku. So there was a big Swedish colony there, and that was a horrible disaster. Also, in that same era, we had the Osage Reign of Terror, O-S-A-G-E, and that was also the formation of the FBI in the United States. I've already talked about the Osage Nation, but basically what it was was these, the history behind, it was called this headright system, begins in the late 1800s when the Osage were driven off their reservation in Kansas. They ultimately settled in northern Oklahoma, purchasing new land with the blessing of the federal government. And, uh, well, it didn't go well. Um, and so I have all the documentation here for you to look at. Um, the FBI was formed. Um, what happened to the Osage Nation? Well, most of them were murdered or um, they lost their property. They were People descended on them and didn't feel like these brown people deserved all that money, so they were robbed. We got the daylights robbed out of him, and that was the formation of the FBI in the United States.
1908, first Model T, kind of makes you wonder about all these buildings from the 1800s that somehow they built using all that labor and hauled that stuff around and built all those bricks and did all that stuff, right? Okay, uh, but they started identifying radioactive stuff and they, un they understood the half-life of radioactive stuff as early as 1909, okay? And that's when they proved the half-life rates of decay. In 1911, Standard Oil is split up into 34, country, 34 companies after the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that the company constitutes an illegal cartel. <laughs> okay, um, anyway, so there's more going on with these noble people. Um, let me see. And they were coming up with a chain of decay for the alpha stuff back then. Um, let me see here. 1913, which is pretty important, you know, right? Um, 1914, England will declare war, blah, blah, blah. Um, casualties, World War One, huge casualties, okay? And you need to look at some of the pictures of the hats they were wearing and just some strange looking stuff. The total number of military and casualties in World War One was about 40 million. Estimates range from 15 to 22 and about 23 million wounded. See, they never count the civilians that are murdered. They never count the wounded. So this is just a pretty rough idea. And remember, wars are to take out the young male population and leave the widow at home as widowers and rob everybody, right? Okay, so 1917. Um, so people in this country were snorting up cocaine like crazy people until, let me see, calls for prohibition because I'm bringing this up because my view is a lot of these people appear to be indulging in some rather heavy cocaine use and because cocaine and marijuana besides prescription drugs are big deals in this country, right? So it got started and then in the 1800s and remember right now the U.S. has a cocaine manufacturing facility that I've talked about in the past which is located in New Jersey. But so they pulled this Harrison Narcotics Tax Act in 1914, a law requiring cocaine and narcotics to be dispensed only with a doctor's order. So, um, yeah, I mean, let's face it, these people are the ones who brought the drugs into the picture and it's part of their eugenics program because what better way to destroy a family than to get a family member hooked on drugs, right? Okay, Pop popularization of cocaine is first evident with laborers who use it as a stimulant often supplied by employers who falsely believed that it increased productivity. African-American workers were believed by employers to be better at physical work and it was thought it provided additional strength to their constitution, which according to the medical news, made black people impervious to the extremes of heat and cold. Instead, cocaine use quickly acquired a reputation as dangerous, and in 1897, the first state bill for control came from a mining county in Colorado. 
Laborers from other races used cocaine, such as in northern cities, where cocaine was often cheaper than alcohol. In the Northeast, in particular, cocaine became popular amongst workers in factories, textile mills, and on railroads. In some instances, cocaine use supplemented or replaced caffeine as a drug of choice to keep workers awake and working overtime. Yes, it's quite a big deal. Um, now, why would they spend the time making cocaine in Afghanistan when they can make pills, right? Like fentanyl and stuff like that. But I believe there is a huge, huge amount of cocaine being used. So, yeah, that's what they claim. Okay, so moving along, we had a Persian famine, 1917 to 19, 2 million people dead. Um, so, and that was going on exactly during World War One, And there was also a lot of people being starved in India during World War Two. And here's where it gets interesting. Now, there's these people called the Romanovs. R-O-M-A-N-O-V. Sounds like Roman, and all they've added is an O-V, right? Well, I hadn't really thought much about them until... I was putting together, the whole reason I put together this timeline was so I could start to process the times and stuff, right? Well, these Romanovs people, first of all, their name starts with Roman. <laughs> that should be our first clue, right? Okay, and the Romanovs just so happened to be right at this exact same juncture of time. The Russian Revolution was a period of political and social revolution that took place in the former Russian Empire begun during the First World War. This period saw Russia also abolish its monarchy, which was the Romanovs, right? The war, uh, World War I, just a reminder, was March 1917, to June 1923. Six years, three months, and eight days. Aren't they always so specific? So, okay, so 1917, the war, World War One starts, right? Well, who do we have in the picture here? We have the House of Romanov. Was the reigning imperial house of Russia from 1613 to 1917. They achieved prominence after the, uh, this, Anastasia, they've done movies about all this stuff. Anastasia Romanova was married to the first Tsar of Russia, Ivan the Terrible. Tsar Nicholas's two immediate family was executed in 1918, but there are still living descendants. So, so they say World War One starts 1917. These Romanovs over in Russia all of a sudden supposedly get executed in 1918 and I believe a lot of this takeover with these psychopaths happened around some of these time frames right and the people who are claiming to be some of these higher level people claim to be of royal origin the Ro Romanov family was the last imperial dynasty to rule Russia they first came to power in 1613. So yeah, so these Romanovs need a really thorough look. Are they really dead? Well, I would kind of doubt it, right? 
The Romanov dynasty, also known as the House of Romanov, was the second imperial dynasty after the Rurik dynasty to rule Russia. So, uh, they, uh, the direct mail line, uh, they all connect. Uh, they're probably hiding as somebody else, right? Because we still have those Romani gypsies. They're all connected in here somewhere, okay? Okay. And here's where it gets interesting. The last Romanov Tsar, Nicholas II, began his reign in the autumn of 1894, when as a second Russian emperor by that name and a direct descendant of Empress Catherine the Great, he ascended the throne. His ascension occurred much sooner than anyone had expected. Nicholas's father, Tsar Alexander III, died unexpectedly at the relatively young age of 49. So yeah, 1894 and then 1917 or 18, they're all getting killed off, right? <laughs> well, I'm not laughing because I think people getting killed off is funny, but it just appears to me that this whole Romanov family, if you're going to be picking this up from where I'm leaving it off, I would look at them with a very sharp eye, okay? <laughs> because something is here about this time. Why did they supposedly get executed right as World War One is happening? But anyway, I have an interesting exploration of all their pictures and stuff here to take a look at. And some interesting things about why were American soldiers called doughboys. Um, what I tried to do was fill in some things that I found interesting that I had been looking at. And that, and also around that same time, 1917, we had the radium girls. Those were the women who were recruited to paint using radium. And most of them got cancer and had very tragic deaths. That would have been in 1917. You see, a lot of stuff is starting to go on around this time, right? <laughs> um, they called the radium girls the living, living death victims. I mean, that got really ugly with those radium girls. But here again, right at that key point when all these things are going on, the radium girls are getting hit with this stuff, right? And at the same time, I've also got a lot of information about how they, oh, I'm not going to read you the details, it's pretty horrific stuff, but, um, <laughs> so it said if the dial painter, they paint, they were painting dials of watches and stuff to make them glow in the dark <laughs> with radiation. If the dial painters didn't die from jaw issues like the ones that plagued Molly, they would eventually form large cancerous bone tumors called sarcomas. These tumors could grow anywhere. Uh, one died from developing a pelvic tumor that was larger than two footballs. This radiation stuff is just wonderful stuff to kill people with. I gotta tell you, it's, it's the perfect thing. It's hiding in plain sight. These women luckily knew what got them, right? I mean, not luckily. Don't take my words out of context, but you get what I'm saying. I'm thankful that I know what's going on in this house because I cannot even imagine if I didn't know what was going on. I mean, for goodness sake. You know, as sick as everybody is around here and stuff, I'm just trying to maintain our sanity. So I'm glad. I feel thankful that I know. And I also believe that I likely knew this was going to happen before I came here. So I'm certainly not trying to play any kind of a role of a victim here. But I am thankful that I know what's going on. I'm not thankful that it happened to any of us here. <laughs> but knowledge is power, okay? So anyway, so what happened to... Uh, 
these girls started fighting back, and so they got into 1938. They started uh, recording things literally from their deathbeds because they were literally, uh, they called them ghost women uh, because they were so far toward death, okay? Okay, 1918, Allied First World Casualties. This is where it gets interesting because who lost the most people? Well, World War One, Russia <laughs> lost a ton of people. France was next and British Empire was next. Total casualties of the five of the bloodiest campaigns. Russia came out the big loser, okay? Um... How deadly was World War One? I've got all the statistics here to look for yourself. USA lost 8%, okay? Russia lost 76%. Big, heavy thing, right? Hungary lost, uh, excuse me, percentage of mobilized World War One forces that became casualties. Yeah, I'm not sure these are all dead, but they're casualties. Austria-Hungary, 90%. Germany, 65%. Ottoman Empire, 34%. Bulgaria, 22%. So you look at these things and you start to think, well, who's the victor and who's the victim, right? Well, World War One. it looks to me like Romania, France, Russia got their pants beat off of them. And the U.S. and Japan came out looking pretty good. Um, and then also the casualties by country. Um, very poor records, so I wouldn't hang your hat on any of these particular things. But here again, these other people, right at this same time, Emmanuel Noble and his sister-in-law, Genia, flee Baku via Berlin to Stockholm. The Noble people ended up with their oil enterprises when there was problems in Russia, and these Romanovs all got murdered at the same time <laughs> they fled to Stockholm. See how this is not starting to make a lot of sense. Well, it's making sense in the timeline, right? And then the oil industry in Russia happens to be nationalized that June when they all happen to flee. Funny how that worked, right? And this is very interesting about these, the 1918 flu pandemic. Not wearing a mask was illegal in some parts of America. And I covered all this mask business with starting with those... Um, um, the mass started with those black deaths and stuff, okay? These are one-trick ponies, okay? This is just a cut-and-paste operation. Did the first part, the black deaths, really happen? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. It was, what was it, 14, 1500s? <laughs> I would guess that the action picked up around the fires in London around 1666 would be where I would guess. And I also guess there was a major cleaning of houses when the city of London got going around the 1800s. Just my guess, okay? But a lot of things were happening around this 1918. So, anyhow, so a century later, in 1918, America adopted mask wearing with a vengeance. But a century later, it is Asian countries which have remembered the lessons the U.S. learned about the benefits of mask wearing in slowing the spread of infection. Well, they did find out that, in fact, masks did not s slow down the spread, probably increased it, but it shows you how long they've been out these masks, you know, from that Black Death to all this stuff. So anyway, so then what happens next? Well, <laughs> pretty busy bees, aren't they? 1919, 
the Treaty of Peace. They signed a Treaty of Peace with the Allied and Associated Powers and Germany, where they locked Germany into the corner. Well, did they lock Germany into the counter corner? I don't know. It was called the Treaty of Versailles. It was a peace treaty signed on 28 June 1919 between Germany and the Allied Powers at the end of World War One. It was signed in the Palace of Versailles in France. The treaty imposed harsh terms on Germany, such as accepting the responsibility for causing the war, paying reparations, losing territories and colonies, and limiting its military. The treaty was controversial and widely criticized by many people, especially in Germany, who felt it was unfair and humiliating. Some historians argue that the treaty contributed to the rise of Nazism and the outbreak of World War II. And I have some pictures for you to take a look at. The Treaty of Versailles was signed in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, France. Now, why exactly would you sign a treaty in a place called the Hall of Mirrors? <laughs> because it didn't mean anything? I don't know. So anyway, 1920, we're zipping along here. The world's changing because of radio. Universities began to offer radio-based courses. By 1922, there were 576 licensed radio broadcasters. So radio took by storm in the 1920s. 1920 was a very busy year. 1920, the League of Nations was the first worldwide organization whose principal mission was to maintain world peace. It was founded 10 January 1920 by the Paris Peace Conference that ended the First World War. And same time, Standard Oil buys half of the shares in those creeps running around over in Russia and it's called Branobel. So they're starting to buy each other out. Um, and then we had a major 1920 earthquake in China, which took out a ton load of people. Um, landslides, they don't ever encompass it all, but um, anyhow, Prohibition also began in 1920. Remember, 1920 was when the mafia was really getting busy, right? So I think they got started in New Orleans. And then in 1920, they're great, great, very involved in prohibition. The 18th Amendment of the United States prohibited the production and selling of intoxicating liquors had been ratified in 1919. So, yeah. Well, you know, I don't think that any of us invented alcohol, if you want to know the truth. But, yeah, it created all this stir and... What else happened in 1920? They introduced the flappers. The flappers were essentially men wearing wigs pretending to be women. That's when they started to really nationalize us with this transgender thing, right? Flappers of the 1920s were young women known for their energetic freedom, embracing a lifestyle viewed by many at the time as outrageous, immoral, or downright dangerous. So... They've always been trying to teach us how to behave, right? And flappers were to teach women to want to dress up. Well, the flapper women were all men, 
okay? They were all transgender men wearing wigs. And I have all their pictures here. Go take a look at them. You don't have to take my word for anything. Um, they were all men wearing wigs since the very beginning. Like Zelda Fitzgerald was probably one of the more famous flappers. She was the first American flapper. And, you know, so all that stuff about all along these psychopaths have made it their full-time effort to get us to emulate their behavior and I am sad to tell you it has been working like a charm everybody wants to be like these people I think the number one thing kids want to be famous and want to be YouTube people okay Coco Chanel another very popular she started out as a um, flapper girl Coco Chanel had a brief career on stage in the early 20th century, but will always be known for her fashion design. So, yeah, a man in a wig telling us women, what is a flapper? No one knows how the word flapper entered American slang, but its first appearance just following World War One. The classic image of a flapper is that of a stylish young party girl. Flappers smoked in public, drank alcohol, danced at jazz clubs, and practiced sexual freedom that shocked the Victorian morality of their parents. So yeah, that was another wing. Um, okay, 1920, what else we come up with? Well, they came up with the uh, mafia. They came up with the um, public enemies of the mafia. That's where they came up with people like Bugsy Siegel and stuff in the 1920s. <laughs> Lucky Luciano, uh, John Dillinger. These were all Machine Gun Kelly names. If you watched any old movies, you would have heard them. The Mafia, a network of organized crime groups based in Italy and America, evolved over centuries in Sicily, an island ruled until the mid-19th century by a long line of foreign invaders. Sicilians banded together in groups to protect themselves and carry out their own justice. In Sicily, the term mafioso or mafia member initially had no criminal connotations and were used to refer to a person who was suspicious who was suspicious of central authority. By the 19th century, some of these groups emerged as private armies or mafi, M-A-F-I-E, who extorted protection from landowners and eventually became the violent criminal organization known as the Sicilian Mafia. The American Mafia, which rose to power in the 1920s, is a separate entity from the Mafia in Italy, although they share such traditions as omerta, a code of conduct and loyalty. The Mafia of the United States emerged in impoverished Italian immigrant neighborhoods. Well, I have to say, I think they emerged out of New Orleans. <laughs> okay, so I got a lot of information as far as uh, they probably came in through New Orleans and merged over to New York where all the people were living, right? But keep in mind, here again, early law enforcement in this country was not done typically by cops, okay? Okay, so because the mafia came on the rise in Italy in 1861. See, this is this is where we keep coming back to these dates, right? Um, so I believe, and I've talked about this in the past, when the mafia became less popular, 
in the news in this country was when John Gotti, the famous mafia guy, supposedly got taken down by, um, who was it, Rudy Giuliani for tax evasion. Okay, they finally got Gotti after three or four trials. Well, all of those trials were performance, right? None of those trials were real. What they were doing was acting like they're taking control of the mafia, right? Well, what happened next was that was the last big case, and that would have been in the 1980s. Well, when did Silicon Valley start? Huh, let's think here for a minute. It seems to me like they shifted the energy of the money collecting that the mafia was doing um, to the high-tech people. But remember, this is just my idea out of my crazy little head here, right? But I believe that there was a transition of the mafia that went from the streets of New York to the boardroom of Silicon Valley, and I still stand by that today. 1921, they come up with the Nobel Peace Prize. See, lots happened around this time frame now, isn't it? They had a huge Russian famine. Five million were killed. The early 20th century was a tumultuous time for Russians as they lost millions in World War I, experienced a violent revolution in 1917, and suffered from multiple civil wars. The Bolshevik soldiers often, often forced peasants to sacrifice their food throughout the war, wars with little in return. As such, many peasants stopped growing crops as they could not eat what they sowed. This resulted in a massive food, food shortage of food and seed. So by 1921, 5 million Russians have perished. Here again, big groups of people just all of a sudden perishing, right? So 1922, international oil companies get together to boycott all business with the Russians, but they fail. 1928. Bank of Italy merges with Bank of America. So, 1928, there was a huge hurricane. 1928, it took out, it was uh, the biggest hurricane after Galveston. San Felipe Segundo Hurricane was one of the deadliest hurricanes in the recorded history of the North Atlantic Basin and the fourth deadliest hurricane in the U.S., only behind the 1900 Galveston hurricane. All these hurricanes and stuff, right? 1929, Great Depression, Wall Street crashes, uh, and 1929, they acknowledge that the connection to uranium remained a mystery. Uh, let me see here. It was remained unsolved until uranium-235 was discovered in 1929. And those people also got a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> 1929, they did this campaign called the Freedom, Torches of Freedom campaign. That was to get women to think that smoking was cool and something they should be doing. So they went on this big campaign called Women Are Free, put out by the American Tobacco Company in 1929. Originally, there were misconceptions that women do not smoke, particularly those that were considered nice or good girls. Indeed, while tobacco had been consumed in America in the late 19th century, 
It was not until 1929 that women were really expected or even allowed to partake in the consumption of tobacco products. All of our parents smoked. Um, yeah, we rode around in cars with the windows rolled up and everybody smoking. Um, Amelia Earhart did ads to get women to smoke. They had radio commercials. Okay, now we get to 1931. They build the um, Hoover Dam, but there is a monster flood here again in China. The Yangtze River floods, 1931, took out a ton, three point, as many as possibly 3.7 million people. 1932, there was a huge famine in so in Russia, 10 million people dead. Okay, um, in 1932, they discovered neutrons. Um, so yeah, um, 1933, 1933 is a massive, massive amount of things taking place. You have the FDR's farm program, you have the, uh, he took off, he, he made people, Executive Order 6102 required all persons to deliver on or before May the 1st, 1933, all but a small amount of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates owned by them to the Federal Reserve in exchange for $20.67, equivalent to $433 in 2021. So this was under the Trading of the Enemies Act of 1917. What they do is they've been putting these acts into place, okay? And the Trading of the Enemies Act, what they do is they go pull back this act and they say, oh, okay, well, it's 1933, so we're going to use this act and we're going to sign this executive order. And this executive order, 6102, requires all citizens to turn in their gold, okay? And also remember, that was the same year that all U.S. Now that they sold us with our birth certificates, but in 1933, we were also all declared enemies of the state in 1933, and that has never listed, lifted. 1933, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company was created. That came out of the, um, I don't know, it came out of the depression because it's always a matter of, well, we're not going to have this happen again, so we're going to give you this tool, the FDIC. Well, if you've checked recently, the FDIC spent all of their money bailing out the Silicon Valley banks when this all got started a few months ago. So, let me see. 1933, 25% U.S. unemployment, repeal of prohibition laws. What a time to... They, they, they repealed prohibition so people could have booze starting in 1933 with a 25% unemployment rate. Marvelous mood, right? They also, of course, kept the liquor stores and gun stores open here when they first shut down this country. We've had full access to alcohol and guns all this time. Okay, so 1933 was one of the worst years during the Great Depression. Okay, uh, everybody was affected. And what made it worse was... Um, the Dust Bowl, and what it did, it was in Kansas, and it stripped all the topsoil, and it was from 1925 to 30, anyway, anyway, so, it's interesting that in 1933, they end prohibition when so many people are out of work, right, uh, but there's a lot going on in 1933, I would encourage you to spend some time scanning through all this, because 
how they set this up is interesting and how we went along with it is fascinating to me, right? They never did much nice to us except for to beat us around and stuff, but we seem to always accept that they were the right people to be in charge. Okay, so um, uh, I also have some interesting things here. I couldn't find the 1933 cost of living, so I put in the 1939, close it up, how much they spent on housing and stuff. Okay, end of the war, everybody's happy times. They started the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, Clean Water Act. <laughs> Boy, that's been a failure, hasn't it? Clean Water Act, um, 1934. And remember when um, FDR did all of that stuff where he, um, during that same time, Albert Einstein comes over here. First drive-in movie theaters opened in New Jersey. And always remember this, is fission, fission, not fusion, okay? So, nuclear fusion, they found that it was possible, 1934, I think I was at, to split the nucleus of a uranium atom by bombarding with neutrons. So, that is when they came up, the first person to conceive of the nuclear chain reaction and the atomic bomb came about. At the exact same time, while Americans were piling into their cars to go to the new movie theaters, right? They're over there doing this. And then at the same time, the United Kingdom had that reactor that I've been talking about. They did the Leo Stittard nuclear reactor that they came up with that they said was for, um, in 1939, they said it was for utilities, but it was really for <laughs> weapons. Um, so, um, yeah, and they started the Manhattan 1942, where he got over all this stuff. Interestingly enough, King Kong, the movie, was the biggest movie then, about that big gorilla. We didn't really realize a big gorilla was getting all of us now, did we? Shirley Temple signed a contract with Fox when she was five years old. Oh, and the woman who invented chocolate chip cookies. So, Monopoly, the board game, was patented. Actually, the board game started with uh, another thing, which I forget right now, but uh, Hitler takes over, Alcatraz in San Francisco becomes, uh, I don't know, all of these diseases, all this trauma. Um, there's something about, there was this thing called the uh, Loch Ness Monster was cited for the first time on May the 2nd in 1933. But this Loch Ness Monster is also some other symbolism. I have to remember what it was. Uh, but anyway, so I also have a list of... Um, and during the same time that Yellow River is taking place, it said there were so many corpses floating in China's Yellow River that many people became body fishers and they made money by collecting the remains and selling them back to the families. Well, there's just something, all these incidents they cause now, isn't it? Okay, here's where we get good, okay. 1933, okay. Listen up. The bankruptcy of the United States. This was from an article, okay, from June 2001. People see more... People seem more inclined to research and investigate root causes and actual conditions in hard times 
So I am putting this information once more in the hope some of my countrymen who do not understand what is presently happening will become aware that they are unaware and in awakening, awaken others to the end game. I really was a railway switchman once before I enlisted in the army and I hear a night train coming and I'm pretty sure the engineer is asleep or dead. If you don't mind, this isn't a thread about the merits of metals, but about recent history and worse things we can expect if we don't wake up and demand some accountability from our alleged servants in government. The fact of the matter is, the United States did go bankrupt in 1933 and was declared so by President Roosevelt by Executive Order 6073-6101-6111 and by Executive Order 6260 on March the 9th, 1933 under the Trading with the Enemies Act of October the 6th, 1917 as amended by the Emergency Banking Relief Act. So, and all of these laws are right here on my website. Just click on over there and take a look, okay? Therefore, Congress confirmed the bankruptcy on June the 5th, 1933, and thereupon impaired the obligations and considerations of contracts through the joint resolution to suspend the gold standard and abrogate the gold clause of June the 5th, 1933. When the courts were called upon to rule on various, various of the provisions designed to implement and complement FDR's Emergency Banking Relief Act of March the 9th, 1933, they were all found unconstitutional. So what FDR did was simply stack the courts with his chosen ubiquitous members of the bench and bar and then sent many of the cases back through and reversed the rulings. House Joint Resolution 192 was passed by Congress on June the 5th, 1933. The act impaired the obligations and considerations of contracts and declared that the notes of the Federal Reserve Banks were legal tender for both the payment of both public and private debts and that payment in gold coin was against public policy. In effect, FDR and Congress, under executive orders and legislative fiat, nationalized the people's money, their gold coin. Nationalization is a violation of the law of nations and existing public policy of Congress. They have all these things to cite, okay. Um, so, uh, what they did, moreover, all of the governors of the several states of the Union were also summoned to and were in Washington, D.C. during the several days of this pre-planned economic emergency. The first phase, which was to nationalize and expropriate the people's money, their gold coin, on deposit in the banks, 
pledge the full faith and credit thereof to the aid of the national government and formed various socialist committees such as the Council of State Governments, Social Security Administration, etc., to purportedly deal with the economic emergency. The Council of State Governments had been absorbed into such things as the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, whose headquarters is located in Chicago, and all being members of the bar and operate under a different constitution and bylaws, far distant from the depositors of the public record. And it is this organization that has probulated, lobbied for, passed, educated, and ordered the implementation and execution of their purported uniform and model acts and pretended statutory provisions in order to help implement international treaties of the United States or where world uniformity would, should be desirable. These organizations operate under the Declaration of Interdependency as of January 22, 1937, and publish some of their activities in the Book of the States. The 1937 edition openly declares that the people engaged in such activities as the farming husbandry industry had been reduced to mere feudal tenants on the land they supposedly owned. On April the 25th, 1938, the Supreme Court overturned the standing precedents of the prior 150 years concerning common law in the federal government. There is no federal common law, and Congress has no power to declare substantive rules of common law applicable in a state, whether they be local or general, in their nature, be they commercial law or part of the law. So they basically, it goes on to say, you must realize that the common law is the fountain source of substantive and remedial rights, if not our very liberties. So the members and associations of the bar thereafter formed committees, granted themselves special privileges, immunities, and franchises, and held meetings concerning the judicial procedures, and further amended laws so as to conform to a trend of judicial decisions or accomplish similar objectives, including hodgepodging the jurisdiction of laws and equity together, which is known as one form of action. This was not by accident, but by a carefully conceived plan. So what they did was they started abolishing and changing things around. And what they did, the 1938 rule abolished the distinction between actions at law and suits at equity. This change would abolish the distinction between civil actions and suits in admiralities and also Federalist Papers. So this admiralty stuff I've talked about in the past, and um, so the United States therefore entered the Second World War during which time the League of Nations was reinstituted under pretense of the United Nations. This stuff gets really weedy, and I feel a little bit um, 
not that well today. So what I'm going to be doing is leave this up for you to understand because it is a big, big trick, okay? Because the United States is a corporate body, okay, that came out after World War II in a worse economic condition than when it entered. And in 1950, declared bankrupt and reorganization. The reorganization is located in Title V of the United States Codes. So if you're smarter than me, you want to go look up these codes. I, I did look them up, and they are, in fact, true. I and mean, this person is not crazy, okay? Um, so basically, they started doing all these reorganizations. But the bottom line is this, okay? Um, they come up with these acts. They challenge the acts. It goes round and round. The bottom line is... We're all slaves of them. That happened when they freed the slaves. Um, we were declared enemies of the state in 33. But if you have more of a legal mind, you want to read through this stuff because it all refers back to different things like emergency banking acts of 1933, and then they did this enemies thing in 1917. So they use these laws just to weave through whether you really have rights or not, okay? Um, and it, this goes on to say... And I'm, I'm leaving out a huge gap of this stuff, okay? Because you need to be your own seeing eye dog and figure this out, okay? And wittingly, America has returned to its pre-American revolution, feudal roots, whereby all land is held by a sovereign and the common people had no rights to hold. It's called Aloda, A-L-L-O-D-I-A-L, title to property. So it has to do with the title being held to property, okay? And it says, once again, we the people are the tenants and sharecroppers renting our own property from a sovereign in the guise of the Federal Reserve Bank. We the people have exchanged one master for another. This has been going on for over 80 years without the informed knowledge of the American people, without a voice protesting loudly enough so uh, it says why don't more people own their mortgages outright why are 90% of Americans mortgaged to the hills and have little or no assets after all debts and liabilities have been paid for why does it feel like you're working harder and harder and getting less and less we are reaping what has been sown and the results of our harvest is a painful bankruptcy and a foreclosure on American property, precious liberties, and a way of life. Yes, well, I'm going to cut out. People always come up with these positive things to, uh, oh, wake up America, do the, I'm, I'm not going to bother with that right now, okay? But facts are the facts, okay? And I would encourage you to stop letting other people look for you. All the information is here. Look for yourself, okay? 1934, they're really wrapping up this neutron stuff, right? Um, and that, that was also when the birth of cultural Marxism. I talk about the Frankfurt School. Um, the Frankfurt School's main theme was, I have a whole show about it, the revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move toward universal egalitarianism. Yeah. Okay. 
ask, how did America get the condition it is so quickly? Well, it didn't get in here quickly, right? It's been a long, we've been frogs in some boiling water since the beginning. And uh, I have a ton of information about the Frankfurt School that I didn't cover on the show about the Frankfurt School that you might want to take a look at. Um, the main guy, this Max guy, um, one of his main slogans was, all news is lies and all propaganda is disguised as news. Kind of says it all, doesn't it? 1935, Social Security Act, which they've had it twisted around now. People paid into that as insurance. It's not an entitlement. Okay, I'm going to have to be closing this off because I've already covered all of the stuff from 1938 to 1941, but here it is in more detail. The Manhattan Project, the timeline, how they started bombing these places. And because I, I, what I found, somebody had done um, timelines and uh, a person after my own heart, they did a complete timeline of the Manhattan Project and I think I captured them all and it goes blow by blow from date by date exactly what they are doing and I captured them all here so you can take a look and see what they were doing in 1942, 1941, whatever they were cooking up. Somebody had captured it so I grabbed it. Okay, um, there's a lot of them. Uh, I think I got them all straight. Okay. World War II. Um, also, the OSS organization, November 1944, that was the precursor to the CIA. 1942, they were formed. And we're back at Bengal again. Bengal, excuse me, Bengal, um, India. Huge famine, 1943, and this is right exactly, and there was a big fishy deal about how Churchill refused to send them rice, so millions of people died of starvation. Yeah, it's a real thing. They say 7 million were dead. Um, that was at the same time as this uh, World War II was going on, and I had no idea because... For nearly 2.5 Bengalis, the accumulative damage of the cyclone, see, what happens is one thing gets them, and then the rest just snowballs after that. Well, that's how they lay the trap, right? Get them to fall for one thing. And uh, they said that October 42, unreliable crop forecasts. A whirlwind of catastrophic events set about the Bengali famine Bengal, excuse me, famine of 1943. Yeah, Churchill, well, he did a number on those people. Uh, his famous quote from the time is, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. And I found some studies that related to Churchill's policies and how they contributed to the 1943 Bengals. And I will leave that for you to read. It's Fascinating stuff. Um, let me see, what does he say here? Churchill said, Diplomacy is the art of telling people to go to hell in such a way that they ask for directions. Okay. Churchill, another ugly woman taking testosterone, right? And yeah, what went on during this whole thing and Churchill's hand in it? In his famous quote, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Well, people have rewritten. Um, and 
Another quote that I liked of his, which speaks to his personality, you will never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be clipping along here. I also have complete data about Fort Detrick, which I have talked about a million times before. Fort Detrick is a U.S. military biological weapons program that they admit was biological from 1943 to 1969. Now, I wasn't there, you weren't there, but I suspect, I suspect it's still up to the same thing. And I talked this in passing about, there was a very famous CIA scientist, supposedly named Frank Olson, supposedly jumped to his death, or was he pushed when he was on LSD because of all this MK7 stuff? interesting stuff. His son did these shows on Netflix. I don't know if it's true or not. It's called the um, uh, Wormwood. Wormwood. They love those worms and woods, right? Wormwood is a series on Netflix. You may be able to see it on YouTube now. I don't know. But anyway, one of his relatives also wrote a book called The Coldest Warrior. Now, did the dad get pushed out of a window? Well, I don't know. Um, because all these people are criminals, so I, I really wouldn't just off the grill say, yeah, it didn't happen, but yeah, probably. Uh, so, and there's all these things that I captured as far as reports that went on at Fort Detrick about feeding people massive amounts of um, um, LSD and stuff, and you know how it came from that guy that started the MK7. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> is the Frank Olson story true? Probably. There's probably some truth in it, right? So anyway, so I have all this Fort Detrick stuff because I've mentioned Fort Detrick's, I'd say, about a thousand times, so you might want to take a look at it. And also how this celebrity sold these war bonds to get us into wars. So um, a lot going on. 1945, the wars. Um, take a look at, oh, here we need to talk about this. Okay, Lucis Trust. The UN was founded after World War II, okay? The Lucis, L-U-C-I-S Trust. The Lucis Trust is the publishing house which prints and disseminates U United Nations material. It is a devastating indictment of the New Age and pagan nature of the UN. So Lucis Trust was established in 1922 as the Lucifer Trust by Alice, Alice Bailey, okay? Alice Bailey had this publishing company called Bailey and Blavosky, which is this really strange spiritual leader. Anyway, I have it all here. Just go take a look, okay? So it's a the reason I published it here was because I found it a very interesting story, okay, about how, remember, we're just now in 1922 and all this stuff is going on, right? Um, so it was named Lucifer Trust, for a while, but I think that was probably a bridge too far, right? Because um, there's a book, and it has Lucifer Publishing, 1923, and they changed the name. So, um, and the original office was located at 666 in New York. Okay, um, and it was this, this Russian immigrant woman who was into psychic readings and. I, I spent time in Sedona. I'm familiar with all of these new age people, and I don't know, it's a strange crowd. Um, because 
when you look at the UN logo, allegedly the UN logo is supposed to look like the flat earth, okay, because there's all this stuff about the occult, United Nations, the loosest trust, and the flat earth connection, okay. Where does that go? I don't really know. I think that it's all just kind of kind of crazy. So 1946, they started bombing Bikini Atoll. The CIA was formed in 1947. That came out of the OSS. So if these people had been in charge for so long, why are these things just starting to happen, right? 1942, excuse me, 1949, huge population of the death toll of the world from World War II. And I have all of the casualties here about people who lost their lives. Uh, and that was when they were doing all the testing over in Russia. Basically what was going on was they called it a Cold War and it was because of the communists versus the so-called Americans, right? So the Russians were doing their vicious tests over there and the polygon and stuff, blowing the heck out of people with nuclear weapons. And the U.S. was over here blowing us up with different things. And that's when they did the Rocky Flats and the plutonium in 1951. Um, so, anyhow, then Vietnam comes along in 19... See how everything is kind of like running together in a kind of a, well, very eugenics kind of a way, right? Um, the U.S. gets involved in Vietnam. Vietnam starts in 1955. Well, they supposedly didn't get involved, but United States involvement in the Vietnam War began shortly after the end of World War II in Asia. First, in an extremely limited capacity and escalating over a period of 20 years. The U.S. military peaked in April of 1969 with 543,000 combat troops. So yeah, millions of people were murdered. And the legacy of Vietnam goes on today with those deformed babies and stuff. 1958, Great Leap Forward. Here again, another huge wiping out of people. They're, they lost supposedly between 30 and 45 million deaths by starvation, execution, torture, forced labor, and suicide. The Great Leap Forward in China. NASA formed 1958. Our friends at DARPA became ARPA. Originally they were ARPA in 1950. Those are the people that I've been complaining about. DARPA runs the internet. When my shows upload, they first go to Virginia and Brussels. Time and time again. There's some weird blocks they have on my account, but I see exactly what they're doing, but I don't intend to tell you exactly what I've seen, but I am telling you that I have confirmed that DARPA is who runs the internet and is the, well, I, I don't care if they want to download my shows. I could care less. Um, 1960. U.S. blockade on Cuba. Huge population of dark-skinned people locked over there, right? 1960, massive earthquake in Chile. Huge, huge, huge earthquake, okay? And let me see here. I really hope that you will take a look at all this because these earthquakes, these tsunamis, 1960, supposedly JFK gets killed, 1963. <laughs> I'm really kind of surprised anybody isn't, people aren't just all nervous wrecks. Okay, um, there's this one group I don't know much about, 1968, they formed called the Club of Rome. 
is a nonprofit informal organization of intellectuals and business leaders whose goal is a critical discussion of pressing global issues. And it's a list of most famous characters in this club of Rome. I don't know much more about it, but uh, it was the club of Rome determined determined the limits to growth. The result of the study was that civilization as we know it would collapse shortly after the year 2000 unless a population was seriously reduced. Several top secret recommendations were made to the ruling elite by this uh, Purcell person of the Club of Rome. The chief recommendation was to develop a microbe which would attack the autoimmune system and thus render the development of a vaccine impossible. Well, I think it's kind of the opposite, right? This Percy person had come to the conclusion that a plague similar to that of the Black Death was needed in order to rid certain groups from the populations. The orders were given to develop the microbe and to also develop a cure and a prophylactic. A microbe would be used against the general population and would be introduced by vaccine administration by the World Health Organization. Who are you going to call? The prophylactic was to be used by the ruling elite. The cure would be administered to the survivors when they decided that enough people had died and it would be announced as newly developed. Well, I don't know. Um, they said that, you know, this stuff becomes crazy talk, okay? Because the bottom line is this. All vaccines are a form of eugenics, okay? You have to get that straight because all these people, that liar Dr. John Campbell, they're all confusing the issues when they're picking this, this vaccine or that vaccine. All of them are bad. So I don't know if this Club of Rome, maybe Club of Rome was before the World Economic Forum. Don't know. Okay, 1969, they land supposedly on the moon. <laughs> and same time, 1959, Russia's over there doing it. See how you start to see that Russia's doing this, the United States is doing this, all under the guise of the Cold War, right? And during the 60s, they came out with anxiety medications for us, like Valium. Why am I talking about Valium? Because Valium was created by that Sackler family, you know, the family that created the opioid epidemic that wiped out so many people in this country and all around the world. The United States is 5% of the world population, yet the United States takes, I think it's like 90% of the opioids in the world. Well, they started off with Valium, okay? One of their relatives started Valium. They called it the drug that steals women's lives. It's more addictive than heroin with horrifying side effects. So, um, yeah, they relaunched it. I was on Valium for a long time. They had me on just a massive amounts of Valium. But, you know, for some reason I never got addicted. But anyway, so, yeah, um, but Valium, they came up with Valium right after they stopped giving women lobotomies, okay? So there's a lot of information in this file about how the Sackler family built a pharma dynasty and fueled an American calamity. The family that built an empire of pain. So yeah, um, and then this, this shows you how these people think, okay? Because 
I, I pulled out this quote. There's a lot to read here as far as these people, okay? Because one of their relatives cooked up Valiums, and then years later they came up with opioids, okay? And in his interview with Vanity Fair, David Sackler lamented the day that his four-year-old son returned from nursery school and asked, why are my friends telling me that our family work is killing people? So, um, and the Sackler family, I just put this in there because I just felt like it. They had this heir who sadly died of, of suicide that they buried. Well, remember, their heirs have been, their heirs are transgendered, so none of these people are their right sex. So, did one of their kids take their own life because they went crazy from all the drugs and stuff? Well, I would find that pretty easy to believe, right? So, I have a lot about the Sacklers, why they have their names all over buildings, all the drugs. It goes on and on and on. Okay, so, um, I think that's about it. I'm about wrapping up here. Um, and then I also have a whole bunch more, um, big disasters here again, Pakistan. Uh, the, the first supposed trip to the moon, I'm getting kind of tired now. 1972, anti-pollution legislation. We see how that's worked out, right? Um, anyways, I have all these acts here for you to take a look at. And then 1975, the Cambodia genocide. I have really been looking into that, boy. Oh. Okay, 1976, huge, Huge earthquake wiped out a lot of people in China. 1979, Ted Bundy and our fascination with true crime. And I have a lot of Bundy stuff here just for fun for you to take a look at. Ted Bundy really isn't dead, but that's not the point, right? And I also, because I'm in kind of that kind of a mood, um, Ted Bundy supposedly had this girlfriend named Liz, and Liz supposedly had a daughter who was with her when she was supposedly dating Ted Bundy. Well, I dug up their current pictures because, yeah, that's kind of how I roll. A couple of evil-looking tranny women wearing wigs. Okay, Ted Bundy's famous quote, We serial killers are your sons. We are your husbands. We are everywhere. And there will be more of your children dead tomorrow. Okay, 18... No, excuse me, 1986, Chernobyl. I have a lot of stuff about Chernobyl. Yucca Mountain, 1987. 1991, they're back at Bangladesh with a huge cyclone. 1994, North Korea gets hit with a massive famine for four years. Imagine being in a famine for four years. Um, and the, the famine was caused by the U.S. and the whole Korean War lies and stuff. Um, I thought I had something about the Korean War in here, but I don't think I do. But the Korean War was so that they could go to war right after World War II, right? Um, then they had the huge genocide in Rwanda, 1994. I believe it was agitated by the U.S. government, but I, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe the people in Rwanda just all of a sudden one day got ticked off at each other. But what happened out of Rwanda was a horrific deal, and it was 100 days of slaughter. It went on for a long time. People were brutally, <laughs> well... Anyway, so um, there were allegations because why didn't anybody stop the genocide? Well, because what came out of the Rwanda was that they came up with the Kigali principles. I've talked about them a million times. Kigali principles are what they're going to use to bring the UN onto the U.S. soil. Kigali principles mean that in case of any kind of conflict, the U.S. 
has signed on to the Kingali principles, which means that if there's any kind of conflict or civil unrest, that gives the green light for the UN peacekeepers to enter U.S. soil. So one of these days in the near future, expect some boatloads of UN people. Okay, 2001, of course, we have the, I have all the literature, the information there about the 2001, the 9-11, started around a story, I kid you not, about Bush reading a story about goats, okay? It's all there. Uh, and then I found, because I've talked about my suspicions over um, the U.S. being in Afghanistan for the war, well, <laughs> other people shared my suspicions. And it was like, why the only winner of America's war in Afghanistan is opium? And there's some interesting information that has come out as far as why the U.S. was really in Afghanistan. And like I have said, it was about the drugs. And I have all of the data here. Somebody did an excellent, excellent article on the whole thing because they actually came up with some quotes. This one was, We stated that our goal is to establish a flourishing market economy, General Loop told a government investigation in 2015. We should have specified a flourishing drug trade, Loop said. That is the only part of the market that is working. So I rest my case. I was just suspicious, but a lot of other people dug up the details. Okay. And also, so 2003, we have the longest Iraq war. Remember, these technically are not wars. The U.S. declared the last war as World War II. These are conflicts, but you will notice that everybody calls them wars, right? That went on in Iraq from 2003 to 2011. And in 2003, we also have the Three Gorges Dam in China. It's called a calamity of Chinese proportions awaits. The dam was cracked when it started, okay? That will take out, according to me, and go listen to my shows about dams, I suspect this dam will take out about 40% or more of the population. Huge earthquake in Tusami, 2004. See these earthquakes in Tusamis, 2005. Huge earthquake, again, we're back in Kashmir. That part of the world just keeps getting hit and hit. Kashmir earthquake, broken city, broken promises. Yeah, um, it was the epicenter. Of course, they tell them they're gonna get them resources, and then it never happens. And then we had Hurricane Katrina right about that exact same time. Um, Hurricane Katrina, 2005. I've got a lot of picture people here. I found this quote. I'm pretty sure Bush probably didn't make this quote, but I found it interesting. It said, I mean, personally, I would have had no problem surviving. Come on, how hard is it to swim? <laughs> Uh, 2006, two gorges. 2008, there was a huge cyclone in Miramar. 2010, of course, we had the Haiti earth, Haiti earthquake. And then Fukushima, 2011. 2017, we had Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. 
one of the deadliest ever. The official death toll from the category, it, the death toll wasn't high, but what they did was they just wiped out all of the infrastructure, right? San Juan Mayor Carmen Cruz rips Trump for throwing paper, because he, the famous scene, he's throwing paper towels at the people, and I have pictures of it. She's, she's quoted him for throwing paper towels at Puerto Ricans after a deadly hurricane. She said, you can kill people with a gun or you can kill people with neglect. Yeah, she got that straight. Uh, anyhow, so then I morphed back into more information about the Nobel Peace Prize. I have his documentations from oh, all the original. And then I found an article about Nobel's fortunes and mishaps in Russia. Okay, I would advise you to take a look at it because it all starts with the father, Emmanuel Noble, okay? Born 1801 to 1872. So, yeah, there is something very fishy about this family, Russia, early 1900s, Standard Oil, those Romanov people roaming around, um, roaming. <laughs> um, yeah, there is something to all of this, and because the noble family gathered in Stockholm in January of 1919 after their flight from Russia. So yeah, why did they go to Stockholm? Why did they leave Russia when all this other stuff is going on, right? So I don't know. Part of the reason, I, or 100% of the reason why I'm sharing my work is not so I have some more busy work. But to hopefully encourage you to start thinking, I don't know. I see a lot of fishy things happening here. And they all seem to be around certain junctures of time, right? Like the Civil War happens to wipe out a whole bunch of able-bodied men. Lots of property gets stolen out of San Francisco early 1900s. I don't know what to tell you, but go through this file. And so at the very end of the file, I reverted back to all of the uh, noble uh, family history stuff. So I don't really know what to tell you. I think that there was a takeover. The psychopaths took over. They certainly got busy right away uh, with learning the chemicals and stuff that would pollute us and destroy our DNA, right? This is about destroying our DNA so they can take over. Not sure how solid that plan is because this isn't, well, I'm in this body until it's time to leave, right? So they can destroy my DNA all they want and they're doing an excellent job. Um, so they can do all they want because this isn't really my body. So I don't really know what is the plan of this game board. Their plan seems to be getting rid of us. They've got a lot of people amongst us to help them. So their plan is to harm us. Right now, they're, I believe that nuclear plants and all these things are really weapons waiting to go off at some point. So I don't want to start speculating what the end game completely is, but there's something that this game board has been going on for a very long time. We've all been rotating in and out of this. We've all been willing participants in all of this. Although, so what they have done was set up the perfect scenario. They set up the money and the power thing so that when people came here to work on their own things that they thought they were going to work on, 
they could get distracted by the money and all that kind of stuff, right? And be easier to manipulate while they schemed up all this other stuff. So, I don't know. It seems to me like some plan is going on to destroy our DNA and it's going to get... Uh, well, I'm not going to speculate. I will close this out for now and... Um, where is this going to go? I don't know. I'm just trying to share with you how we got here, right? And how we got here has been a pretty crazy path. And I certainly am thankful that I made the decision to record it all because <laughs> this would be very hard to try to, if some stranger said, what have you been doing for the last 25 years? It would be very hard to try to articulate it, right? <laughs> so, anyhow, I am going, will I be back? I never know what I'm going to talk about next. We're in pretty pretty bad shape having all these new transformers added to the mix but you know try to stay one step ahead of them that's all we can do right it's a game play the best game that you can actually a pretty exciting time right we get to see this whole game board blow up right be safe out there goodbye for now